With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us for Heard Tell as we review the week that was by recapping the interviews that we've had in the past week. We always pride ourselves on knowledgeable guests who help us turn down the noise of the news cycle, get the information you need on topics that really matter so that we can discern the times we live in. Just a reminder, Heard Tell comes out every weekday morning, the full program. Every afternoon, the Good Talk segment, that's these interview portions, come out separately. And, of course, twice on Sunday, just what you're hearing here. You can get all that by subscribing, whether it's on the YouTube channel, any of the podcasting platforms. We appreciate you listening, and it's going to be a great edition of Twice on Sunday. Let's get directly to it right now. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little economics. We're going to go down to... Arkansas, University of Central Arkansas. That's in Conway. Just go north on 40 up from Little Rock Spell. Just kind of veer to the left real subtle-like. You'll come right to it. Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, another of our Young Voices contributor and economist. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you, Andrew? Hey, really appreciate the time. Um, I've got to ask you, though, before we get into kind of, because, you know, economists, it's, it's a little wonky. It's a little nerdy. It's a lot of numbers and stuff. Explain to me Homer Simpson buying a home in the nineties and how that compares to today, because I think that's actually kind of a fun way to address some of the topics we're getting into today. Yeah, absolutely. I, so I, I wrote a, a little blog post about this month or two ago um, uh, in response to a lot of people uh, on Twitter and, and Reddit uh, saying that, well, the Simpsons could afford a house in the nineties, but now a typical family, you know, with one earner could not. So and they would just, you know, show a picture of the Simpsons house. You know, here's what a family used to be able to afford. So I went through the data and said, you know, there's data that uh, uh, the Census Bureau collects every year on what does a family with one earner earn? What's the median price of a home? So I just compared the two over time. And when you do that comparison, uh, actually the amount of your income you would have to spend on a home today, uh, or at least with the most recent data up through 2020, maybe it's a little different today as prices have gone way up, but at least you know, through most of the time period the Simpsons has been on the air, uh, the, the amount of someone's income you would need to, to buy a home has been going down over time. If you take into account not only the, the price of the home, but also interest rates and so on. Um, so uh, just, you know, something economists like to do, let's, let's here's, a, here's a claim someone makes about the world. Let's look and dig into the data and see if that matches up with, with the reality from the best data we have. See, this comes to something that when we when we have economists on or we're talking economics on the program, we keep coming back to this. Isn't one of the real big problems with this is everybody's perception of what the economy is is so different? Because like the Simpsons, even underneath all the silliness, that's a very stereotypical. It's a suburban two-story house. You got a husband, wife, two kids. That's a very specific economic social class. So even in something like the Simpsons, there's a perspective bias there when you start talking about, well, they could do that and I can't. How much of the problem in our discourse on economics is that we just don't deal with, we have this big diverse country, which means we have a very diverse economy with a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you need to know that when you're looking at any data or numbers, what does it actually mean? So just to give you one example, uh, there's a, a 
a number called the median household income. If you follow economic data, you see this all the time. You know, median household income, how's it changed over time? Well, when you, when you hear household, you probably think of a family like the Simpsons, right? Married couple, maybe one of them was working, a few kids. But a household includes uh, lots of other situations, such as any two people living together that are unmarried. So two college roommates are a household. Uh, you know, a, a family with eight kids is a household. So, you know, when we look at a number like that, it's, it's really important to give it the context so we can see, you know, what are we talking about? And then if we want to make a comparison to say, how is a family of, of this you know, structure doing, how are they doing compared to a similar family in the past? We've got to try to zero in on the best data to make that comparison, which isn't always easy. easy. Sometimes that data might not exist, but uh, that, that's what we try to do as economists is, is hopefully find the best data. Yeah. And one of those data sets, since you just brought it up, let's talk about it for a second. One of those data sets that are changing is we, we tend to do generational bias when we talk about data sets like that, because every, everybody wants to talk about millennials. Everybody wants to talk about boomers. Mm -hmm. And of course, the boomers aging out is a huge part of the economy right now. Uh, and the millennials moving into their 40s now. But something that we've been seeing in a lot of reporting, I don't know if it's showing up in the data yet, but we're kind of starting to see more multi-generational homes and things like that, or households, I should say, multi-generational households, those sorts of things have a lot of economic uh, ripple effects, don't they, when people start doing those sorts of things instead of just the traditional, oh, you're 20, go to college, get married, go buy a house. Yeah, absolutely. The, the you know, and type of family, if you think about multi-generational, that could mean many things, right? One thing it might mean is that, well, maybe grandma is living with you, and that means you don't have to pay for daycare because grandma can do that. Or multi-generational might mean you have a, an elderly parent who needs a lot of care, uh, in which case that'll be a big burden on the home. So, you know, these types of things are, are something which has always exists, but I think there's a lot more households of this nature than in the past. So we always need to make sure that we know what we're looking at. And, you know, certainly in some of those situations where you have a multi-generational household, that might mean that it's, it's harder to make ends meet. In other cases, it might mean it's easier. Again, maybe... An elderly parent is taking care of the kids. Maybe they're actually still working and they're contributing to the household income. So when we look at data, we want to know, you know, how many people are in the household. We want to at least adjust for, adjust for that. How many earners are in the household, right? All these things uh, can, can drastically alter both how much income they have as well as what their expenses are, which is ultimately what we really want to think about. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl joining us on Herd Tell. Uh, as you're well aware, I'm sure, because you teach students, uh, a lot of people don't really pay attention to economics, but one economic number they always pay attention to, you just mentioned it, when they consume goods, when they have to pay for goods, that means inflation, that means gas prices. Those are the two things that consistently break through. Uh, just turn the noise down for us for a minute. What are you looking at when you look at the buzzwords of inflation and gas prices in the social media realm or the news realm? What are you looking at and what are you trying to tell people like, okay, that's, that's the term and yes, this is happening, but here's what we actually need to be dealing with. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation right now. Everyone's feeling it in lots of different ways. Uh, when you see a number such as the consumer price index, which is the most commonly used measure of inflation that is used uh, out there, both in the media and often by economists as well. Uh, you know, a number like that, I think, is, is useful as a, as a first cut at, you know, how are things right now? How might inflation now compared to a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago? Uh, but I think it's always useful to kind of drill down into that number and to see what, what's causing it, right? So if the price of, you know, we say that the, the consumer price index is up 8.5% or so over the past year, you know, what does that mean? 
Does that mean everything's up eight and a half percent? Well, no, it does not. Uh, some things are up more than that, right? If you look at the price of a lot of different kinds of meat, they're up 15 to 20 percent. Uh, but other things might be going up not quite as fast. So if we're thinking about how does inflation affect a typical person or a typical household, uh, we need to know what sorts of things uh, is that household consuming. And everyone doesn't have the same consumption pattern, right? If we look at, say, you know, my industry, college tuition, right? This is a number of people follow a lot. Uh, well, most people aren't paying college tuition for, you know, 40 years, right? People are paying college tuition for five or six years, or if they go to grad school, maybe up to 10 years. They might be paying off the student loans from those, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, but for most people, you know, what happened to the price of college tuition last month is not really relevant to, to their budget, right? So we want to know what sorts of numbers are relevant. Uh, certainly the price of housing is relevant, right? For most households, this is going to be 20, 30, or 40% of their budget is going to go to housing. Again, housing is so varied across this country, both in how much it costs and how much it's increasing, right? Some, some markets are really hot now and prices might be up 40 or 50% compared to before the pandemic. Others have seen more mild increases, uh, but we wanna know how's that affecting people's budgets? How does that relate to, importantly, how much have their wages gone up? This is the other important thing to remember about inflation is that, well, yes, prices are going up, but if your wages are going up just as much, it's not as much of a, of a, of a burden on you. Uh, but if your wages aren't going up as fast as inflation, that's what really matters to you, right? I mean, let's say inflation was 100% every year. Now that would seem crazy and a totally different reality from where we are now. But if your wages were going up 200% every year, uh, for you as a worker who's, who's seeing those wage increases, 100% inflation is no big deal if your wages are doing better than that. But even at just you know, a mild rate of inflation, 5%, uh, if your wages are only going up 1%, then that really does hurt you. So we need to compare these two things and we need to think about how does it uh, look for whatever type of household we want to analyze, whether it's you know, millennials, they're just kind of getting into the workforce, buying their first home, whether it's the boomers who are just getting into retirement or the next generation, Gen Z or whatever we're going to eventually call them, you know, they're, they're just graduating from college. You know, I teach college and, and we just had our graduation on Saturday and you've got a couple thousand kids that are now being kind of dumped into the workforce. You know, how are they going to do? You know, we want to know all the prices that matter for each of those different types of, of households is very different. So one number like the CPI is, is a useful one to look at, but it should never be kind of the final word of what's going on with inflation. Yeah, and another one of those numbers, uh, Dr. Jeremy Horvidal, an economist joining us on Hertel, another one of those numbers that it gets a lot of play in the media, but it affects people greatly. It really helps some folks. It's really going to hurt other folks. Uh, talk about interest rates for just a second, because that's a number some people are going to love that it's going up. I know a lot of economists have been almost screaming that it needs to go up, but that also greatly affects a lot of people in very, very real day-to-day, -day, almost week-to-week, -week, every paycheck kind of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about interest rates, we always have to realize just like prices, there are lots of different interest rates, right? So there's an interest rate uh, that you might earn from a savings account. Now that's very low today. There's interest rates you're going to pay, such as an interest rate uh, on buying a new house, right? If you buy a new house today, the interest rate you're going to pay is very much higher than it would have been if you bought a house a year ago. Uh, but there's also interest rates uh, that the Federal Reserve Bank is going to loan money to banks at, sometimes on a very short-term basis. Uh, so that's, that's actually a key interest rate, what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing uh, with the interest rate that they are going to be setting in markets for banks, essentially lending money to each other. As that interest rate changes, they increase that interest rate, that's going to have effects that are going to go across the economy. Right? So as the Fed 
starts raising interest rates that they set, that's going to affect things like mortgage rates, and it's going to affect things like the, how much you're going to be paid on a savings account. Um, so we need to think about, you know, why is the Fed doing this, right? And as you said, why are some economists finally cheering that they're doing this? Uh, the reason for that is one of the main policy tools the Federal Reserve Bank has to get inflation down, now that inflation is kind of out of control, uh, is to raise that interest rate. That's one of the main ways they have of impacting the economy. Uh, it's not the only way they have, and there's, there's other things Congress could potentially do, but as far as the Federal Reserve Bank, that's the main thing they're going to do uh, to try to both, you know, when you're in a slow economy, they're going to lower that interest rate to try to speed up the economy in a sense. Um, but when prices start going up, they're going to then raise that interest rate to try to slow down the rate of money growth, which then should slow down uh, how much prices are going up. Uh, but there's, it's a very, you know, kind of challenging thing to do. There's a kind of a long lag between when they change interest rates and when it'll actually affect prices. It's not an instantaneous thing, even though it might instantaneously affect mortgage rates. Um, so these two things, you know, you mentioned interest rates, it's very much connected to the prices we were just talking about earlier. Yeah, talking to Dr. Jeremy Horvendahl, an economist out at the University of Central Arkansas in beautiful Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to drill down on one of those prices, gas prices, and some things that have been going on both in the administrative and in the social uh, discussion field about how those things work. Also want to talk to him about those college kids getting ready to come out because we do that every year and we don't talk about them enough. More economics with our friend Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl right after this on Herd Tech. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We are talking economics. Our friend Dr. Jeremy Horvendahl is going to explain some of this big number, big mass stuff to me like I'm five, so even I can understand it. Uh, here's one that folks get wrong a lot, even though they're invested in it because it hits them directly daily. Gas prices, you've been doing some writing about this in Real Clear uh, Policy. Real quick, though, just so we have our nomenclature right, we talk about it, but break it down. What actually affects gas prices? Why is that what we call a lagging indicator? No, it doesn't just what happened today doesn't show up at the pump tomorrow. This is stuff from six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago. Just real quick in a nutshell so that we have the right terminology, what is gas prices actually reflecting? Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like, where does this number come from? We see it at the pump, right? We don't, and not just at the pump, we see it as we drive by a gas station, right? It's posted everywhere, right? So everyone's very keenly aware of this and it certainly affects people's budgets. Um, you know, economists, of course, love to talk about supply and demand, right? And I think that both of those factors are important here. Uh, number one is there is coming out of the pandemic as, as most countries are now, uh, there's a huge increase in demand for all sorts of things, but especially for traveling, 
right, both by car, uh, by airplane. Uh, and those are two industries which are going to be purchasing a lot of gasoline. It's necessary for them uh, to uh, have those uh, moving forward, of course. So what that means is that part of what's going on uh, is that people are just wanting to buy a lot more. But that's also hitting up to the other half of it that economists like to talk about, and that is the supply, right? So there's the supply of gasoline, uh, which is certainly being affected by the events in Ukraine, uh, as well as countries reacting to that, to that war by uh, either embargoing Russian imports or other things related to that. So that's certainly a part of it, but gas prices had been going up uh, long before that began, uh, going up throughout most of, of last year of 2021. Uh, so what other factors might there be? And here's where I think the, the, the essay you mentioned I wrote for Real Clear Policy, really, I tried to explain this in, in, in a pretty simple way, uh, is that you know, when you have this increase in demand, uh, what we would normally expect for, for most markets is an increase in supply, right? As people demand more, the price goes up, and then there should be more oil put on the market, which eventually turns into more gasoline, and the prices then should come down, which get back to some sort of equilibrium uh, as that happens. But this doesn't happen instantaneously, right? You can't instantly just suddenly find more oil or, or create more gasoline. There's a long production process that's involved in both extracting the oil, finding new oil. Certainly when the price of oil goes up, uh, there are reserves of oil that weren't profitable to extract before that now are. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a time lag. So what's been kind of building up in the you know, past year as we've been coming out of, of the pandemic in the US and, and other countries are as well, is that we've had a big increase in demand, uh, but the, the supply side takes a long time to catch up. And then in the middle of that is when you have the Ukraine war coming, on, uh, coming online. And then that just kind of really just, just toppled it over, right? There's uh, wherever we'd be getting the new supply from, there's now just less oil available in the entire global market. And so that just really uh, then kind of you know, right in February and March, prices just started skyrocketing, right? I think in a few weeks, prices at the pump went up by a dollar a gallon, and it was just a really dramatic increase in a short amount of time. But that was the buildup of a lot of things which have been happening in this very weird economy we have right now, post-pandemic or kind of still in the pandemic, that, uh, that, that all that's kind of coming together. And then consumers end up seeing it at the pump, right? So I think maybe next we'll talk about, you know, what is there anything we can do about that, right? There's a lot of a lot of people suggesting things we can do, but that's that's kind of the, the basics of you know what's what I think is going on with that market right now. Yeah, and you start talking about things like price control. We've seen some op-eds, we see some talking heads discussing it. We've even heard it from some of the White House staff folks. Um, not in that terminology, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about manipulating the price. Here's the problem. Uh, we've seen this movie. We know about the gas shortages in the 70s. That got hung around Carter's neck. But the part of that story folks don't talk about is a lot of the mess that Carter was dealing with was actually Nixon instituted price controls on a whole bunch of stuff before him in the 60s. We have a history of this in the United States of America at, with price controls. You're the economist. You explain it to me. That history is not a good one, correct? Yeah, that's right. So like you said, there have been some people that have been saying that, well, one thing we could do perhaps in some markets is institute price controls of various sorts to try to bring down certain prices like gasoline. Uh, the problem with that is that doesn't solve any of the problems. So all the problems I mentioned that are causing prices to go up, the price control doesn't solve any of those problems. So if we were to put in a, you know, Congress were to you know, wake up today and pass a law saying that 
The most you can charge for gasoline is whatever it was a year ago, right? Realizing different markets are different prices. Arkansas is different from California. Uh, but, uh, you know, if Congress said you got to charge the prices that they existed a year ago, what would that mean? Well, none of the underlying reality has changed about more people wanting gasoline, about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what you're essentially doing is trying to mask the problem. But what that then creates is an additional problem, uh, which is, like you mentioned, the 70s, you get shortages of goods like gasoline, uh, meaning that there just is not enough available. Uh, what that price rising does, right, an important part of prices rising from an economist's perspective, is to make it so that uh, people are going to use less where they can. Now, of course, we can never cut back 100%, but use less where we can. Um, and it's going to try to get more oil on the market. Uh, if you put a cap on that, whether it's the retail price of gasoline, whether it's the price of oil, what that means is you're going to screw up the market trying to react to this, right? You're not going to tell consumers to stop using it, which is what the higher price tells consumers to do. And you're not going to encourage more producers to put more oil or gasoline on the market. And you're going to create this additional problem of shortages, uh, which would mean what we would see at the pump is not high prices, but what we would see is long lines. We would see people lined up uh, because there's stations run out of gasoline and you don't want to not have gasoline. I mean, imagine today, you know, the challenge with electric cars is doing a cross-country trip, right? For short trips, electric cars are actually really good. But am I going to find a charging station if I'm trying to do a 400-mile trip? Uh, if you have shortages of gasoline, it's actually the same problem. You know, am I going to find a gas station on my route that has gasoline uh, and I'm able to fill up with? Uh, that's a huge uncertainty. If we have these shortages happening, it causes uh, a lot of problems with uh, uh, that market and doesn't solve that underlying reality. Let's let's just touch on that real quick, though. Um, when you talk about underlying reality, you wrote about it when you wrote about it in your piece that inflation is a messenger. We know all the stimulus we've done. We're we're all let's just be adults here. We all know that America's uh, fiscal house hasn't been in order at the government level for some time now. Uh, but having given all that, you still say inflation is the messenger for all this. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of the problems of inflation are due to two things, which are clo two closely related things. Uh, one is in the early response to to the pandemic. The Federal Reserve printed a lot of money, and a lot of that money was used to give to households to try to help them out. Uh, but what that meant is you have now all this new demand coming online, and a lot of people save that money and are now starting to spend it. Um, that's the reality. Now, whether we thought that was a good idea or not, uh, you know, back in March and April of 2020, uh, that reality exists. Right? The new money has been printed. Uh, the new money has been given to households, and they're now starting to spend it. Um, and and the reality that it creates is this high rate of inflation. Um, and so there's no way to kind of put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, the Federal Reserve now is slowly trying to do what they can to put the genie back in the bottle, which is to raise interest rates and do a few other things. Uh, but uh, that's not something they can do instantaneously. But you absolutely cannot put the genie back in the bottle of consumers having more money, uh, both due to the stimulus, but also just having not spent a lot of money in 2020 of having saved money and now people are coming out and spending it, and that's going to affect prices. It's going to affect the price of gasoline. It's going to affect the price of housing. Uh, it's going to affect the price of groceries as people start to spend all this money and feel more confident about their own economic situation. And uh, that is the reality. Inflation is just telling us that that's the reality. And so anything like a price control to try to stop inflation is just going to be, as I think I said, shooting the messenger. 
uh, it's going to be masking what what is the reality. So uh, tell us those folks like us who don't have the background on it and can't read all those fancy tables and charts and such. What should we be watching for in the news cycle coming up? We know inflation is out there. We know the interest rates are going to go up a couple times over the summer, probably. We know we have an election year, so there's going to be more buzzwords than probably policy. What should the average person be listening for, both from the politicians and from the policy people, going forward in the next couple of months that should perk their ears up when it comes to the economy? Yeah, I think it's it's challenging for someone out there. With There's numbers that come out every week, right? Here's some new data. Here's some new data. Certainly, we want to be watching that consumer price index I mentioned, and that hopefully that will start slowing down soon. That'll be, that'll be an indication that what the Federal Reserve is doing is actually having an effect uh, if that rate of price increase starts slowing down. Um, there are other, if we want to get into a little bit of the weeds, there are some other measures of inflation. Uh, one that I like and the Fed likes as well is called the, the, uh, the PCE. In particular, one, uh, the, which is the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. It's similar to the CPI, but it's a little different. And importantly, there's a measure of it that takes out the, the extremes, the high and the low prices, and just looks at those in the middle. Yeah, so I think what the average family should look for as, as the data comes out, there's new data that's coming out every week. We'll get some new inflation data pretty soon. There'll be inflation data every month. Certainly, want, we want to watch that inflation number to see if that starts to slow down. Uh, right. If the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do to slow down the rate of growth of money and slow down the economy, that's intended to lower prices. So hopefully soon we should start seeing that have an effect. And the consumer price index, when that's released every month, that that shouldn't be increasing as fast. Uh, but there are other measures of inflation that people might look to. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank actually doesn't look at the CPI very closely. They look at another one called the personal consumption expenditures. They call it the PCE. Uh, it's a little bit different, but but that's another one that we'll want to watch to see if that's slowing down. Uh, but certainly we also want, the other thing we want to be paying attention to, and I think the average person should think about, is the potential downside of the Fed trying to bring inflation under control is it could create an economic downturn. It could create more unemployment. It could make us be in a recession. This is their, This is the danger of doing this and doing it too quickly. So I think that's, you know, Certainly in someone's own life, they're going to know, you know, if they've lost their job. But I think is, if you're trying to watch what's going on with the overall economy, uh, we've had very strong job growth over the past year and a half. Uh, you know, as we take off the restrictions during the pandemic, as people start spending money, we've had very strong job growth. If that starts to slow down, uh, that is a worry that we that the Fed is perhaps overcorrected. I don't think they've done it quite yet, but if we watch over the next six months or so, uh, you know, watch those two numbers, right? Is unemployment or employment growth slowing down? And are we getting prices under control? Uh, the big worry is that what they're doing won't stop the prices from going up and it will slow down the economy. That would be the worst of all worlds. That's again, getting back to the 1970s, what we call stagflation. And sometimes people have been throwing that word around now too, but stagflation means that you have the worst of all worlds, which is high inflation, and you have a poorly performing economy in terms of employment and in terms of economic growth. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, we've still had pretty good economic growth. The first quarter didn't look so good. Uh, so people are now starting to worry uh, as the Fed is trying to slow down the inflation, are they going to create a recession on top of that? Um, which, which is absolutely a possibility. Yeah, 
Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, great stuff today. Really appreciate your insight. Uh, we're going to have you back, but until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, your writing in a couple different places. Uh, let them know how they can get to Conway, Arkansas, if they want to come a visit in, uh, especially for football season. It's a darn fine, nice place, small college campus, taking a football game. We've done that a time or two over the years. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active on there trying to post data. Um, uh, so you can find me. My handle is J-M-H-O-R-P. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I also blog for a blog called economistwritingeveryday.com. Uh, we got seven economists that write for that, and we each write once a week. So there's some fresh content every day. I write on Wednesdays, uh, but all the economists who write for that are great. And have a lot of different different perspectives on the economy. So check out economistwritingeveryday.com. And I think those are the those are the main places you can find me. I'll anywhere else I am, I'll link to from my Twitter. <laughs> well, and uh, we always appreciate uh, folks from the Young Voices Stable. They always have great people, and you are one of them, sir. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, and uh, appreciate your time. Talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you for all the great questions. Have a good yes, day. Yes, sir. Thank you. Tell show. Okay, the streak continues. The most appearances by any one guest in the history of the Herd Tell program, which goes all the way back to last fall. <laughs> Michael Siegel, that's Dr. Michael Siegel to you. Usually we have him on to talk science, and we are going to do that later on in our conversation, but we're actually going to start out with some politics because happens to be one of the hot primaries, one of the most watched primaries in your backyard, the great state and Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, my friend. How are you and are you surviving the primary season? I'm doing well. I'm surviving the primary season mainly by uh, sticking to the oldie station and turning off the TV. Now, you would think people would advertise on the oldie station because that's a, that's a demographic. Old people vote. People that like, you know, the four tops and spinners, they're still out there. They can still go punch a ticket. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of where I got into this, that there were there, there was a, a rare political ad that was actually an anti-Mastriano ad, and I started looking into it, and the claims in the ad were kind of misleading, but the more I got into researching Mastriano, the more concerned I got that he's uh, currently leading the polls. Yeah, so normally we have you on, we talk science, we talk culture. Um, you've been kind of our go-to doing the yeoman's work on the COVID stuff, not only because of you, but because... Uh, your wonderful and talented wife has a deep knowledge area in this. So you've just been carrying the ball for ordinary dash times on a lot of things, but you're going to talk a little politics today because you are a man of many parts and many talents and you're just that smart. Uh, so before we get back to you flying your spacecraft and so forth, let's talk about this Pennsylvania political thing. You actually wrote ordinary dash times.com Doug Mastriano. I'm trying to think, I think this is the first time you've wrote a political piece on one particular individual that I remember um, let's start with just the billboard on him because, and you opened the piece this way on paper, he looks like a pretty solid, normal run of the mill candidate. And then you start scratching the surface or more importantly, he starts opening his mouth and talking. Yeah. Um, so we have Tom Wolf, our former governors is, uh, is leaving office this year. And so we have a, a open seat. Um, the likely democratic nominee has been settled for a while. That's, uh, Josh Shapiro, he's the current uh, attorney general, um, and he's pretty much down the line, left of center, Dem, 
uh, sort of imagine Joe Biden, but uh, who can keep his mouth under control and keeps kosher as well. Um, you know, very law and order type, but does favor legalized pot. Um, he was part of the Hail Mary suit, um, defending Pennsylvania against the lawsuits that were brought by the other states to force reconsideration of the votes in other states. Um, hit uh, something that was important to me, which was there was a specious statistical argument used in the lawsuit that the chance that Trump lost the election was one in quadrillion. And it was obviously garbage, but kind of tricky to explain. And he explained it pretty well. Um, and has forced a couple of Democrat reps actually to resign from the legislature for corruption issues. And he's got the domination log locked down and uh, he, the election should be, uh, as we're recording this tomorrow, and he should have that locked up. The Republican side, though, is a lot more open. Uh, the main candidate for a while was Lou Barletta. He has most of the major endorsements. Um, he was born and raised in Hazleton, PA, was a mayor and then a representative. He's fairly moderate on most issues. I mean, is towing the Trump line on elections and stuff like that, but is you know pretty much a standard Republican. And you also have William McSwain, who served for a while. Uh, he was a U.S. attorney appointed by Trump, but he's been fading in the polls. And he chased Trump's endorsement, but Trump wouldn't give it to him because he said he was a coward for not pursuing fraud charges while he was USA. But uh, the surging to the head of the polls now, and now leading by about 10 points, is Doug Mastriano. And like I said in the piece, on paper, you know, he's a veteran of two wars. He's an author of history books. You know, he's, he was only been in politics a few years. So it's kind of the sort of person who would appeal to people. But the more you look at him, the more concerned you get. Um, there are, he has been cleaning up his social media presence, but there were uh, anti-Islam posts. There were QAnon posts, um, various accusations. There was a New Yorker piece about a year ago that said he was aligning with Christian nationalist elements. He denies that uh, very fiercely, but uh, that's still a point of contention. Um, he was came under heavy criticism last year because he organized six buses of his supporters to go to the Capitol to protest the on January 6th to protest the vote. Now, he said he left when the violence began. There's video showing him still there. Um, so it's there's a little bit of contention over that. And some people said he should have been kicked out of the legislature. That obviously didn't happen. And uh, he was one of the biggest people who was organizing that effort to have um, po Republican politicians meet in Gettysburg with Rudy Giuliani and try to override the will of the voters and appoint a slate of Republican electors to vote for Donald Trump in January of 2021. And so that's uh, caused a lot of controversy. Um, he's also a COVID-19 skeptic. At first, he wanted the to suspend HIPAA so that people who had COVID-19, their names would be known so that, and that was that he's been hit on that. But he then became a down the line skeptic opposing vaccine mandates, opposing mask mandates, that sort of thing. And if you look at his endorsements, it's kind of a who's who of conspiracy theorists. It's Mike Lindell, um, Donald Trump, obviously, um, Rudy Giuliani, um, Mike Flynn, you know, this is, and I think more people are getting concerned and the Republican establishment is concerned about him, but they've kind of responded a little too late. Um, a few candidates dropped out, but there's not enough to overcome this. And one of the problems here is that Pennsylvania, you can get a nomination with the plurality. And so if he wins 25, 30% of the electorate, he'll be the nominee, even though most people are opposed to them. Now, I talked to our mutual friend, Joseph Zemanski, about this, and uh, he pointed out that the undecideds are still kind of large in this race, 
but I think it's now gotten to the point where the undecideds are almost not enough to overcome the advantage. So I think it's quite likely that Mastriano will be the Republican nominee. And if that happens, then we have someone in the governor's office with a almost certainly Republican legislature who has said that he would basically override the will of the voters uh, if the election was close and he thinks there's fraud. Yeah, and Joe Zemanski, our friend, we're going to have him on later in the week after the primaries for this Tuesday. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania, so this is his baby of a race to pay attention to. He knows what he's talking about. Why do you think it is? Because you live there, you're plugged in there, you teach at university there. Um, nationally, the Senate race is getting way more attention because obviously, you know, with the House pretty much probably gone at this point for the Democratic Party, the Senate's where the fight is to see if they can hold on to the Senate. Um, but locally, statewide, is the governor's race getting the kind of juice and attention the Senate race and the congressional races are? Or uh, what is, is it Tom Wolf uh, fatigue just because he's kind of been the governor for a while and it's an open seat? Why do you think the governor's race isn't getting as much attention as those other races? Or is it and we're just not seeing it nationally? I, I think um, it's only recently that it that it got that kind of attention. I think most people assumed it would be Barletta versus Shapiro, who are both pretty mainstream candidates, and uh, and you know Shapiro might have the edge a little bit. But this is a very purple state. Depending on how the Democrats do nationally, that could flip things. Um, I think that the surge of Mastriano towards the front of the pack uh, has really suddenly drawn attention to this race that is very, very important, not just for the people of Pennsylvania, but um, for national implications as well. I got to ask you this question. And I, and I look, I, I'm asking this as a, <laughs> as a point of order, not because I know, don't know the answer. At what point do we have to say a Mastriano is kind of more of a mainstream Republican? Because this is not an insignificant lead he has. This is not out of the realm of other races, Senate and governor races that we're seeing of people who say basically the same things he says. He's backed by Trump. The Trump endorsement here cannot be overstated. This isn't an isolated incident. At some point, we got to be like, look, this is a big chunk of the Republican Party. This is not I don't know if we call it mainstream, but it sure as heck ain't abnormal anymore. No, I don't think so. I mean, he's getting 25, 30 percent of the polls. That's not, you know, a fringe candidate. I, I do think if uh, you had a runoff election here or you had to get a majority that it's likely that he would not get it, that the rest of the Republican Party would unite behind another candidate, most likely Barletta. But if you can have a very vocal plurality in a political party, you can control that party. I mean, we've seen that. I mean, it's not just a recent phenomenon. We've seen that over and over again through American history, but a very motivated plurality can dominate politics in a way that a divided majority can't. Yeah, and there's no runoff again in Pennsylvania like they are in some of these other really close Senate races like North Carolina, like other places. Okay, let's talk about that Senate race for just a second because this is one of the most bonkers wide open Senate races I can ever remember. Oh, usually it's one side or the other side's wide open. Man, both sides are wide open. Uh, let's deal with one uh, breaking story. Uh, Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, apparently suffered a stroke over the weekend. First and foremost, we just hope his health is where it sounds like they were able to do the clot busting drug and he will be okay pretty quickly, but still very scary stuff there. But that's just the latest in a long string of really crazy stuff that is happening in the Senate race. You're actually there. You're seeing the TV commercials when you're not listening to oldies radio. Uh, where, where's this race at for the local folks like you in Pennsylvania? Because nationally looking in, this thing looks like just a crazy turn. Well, the, the, 
Fetterman's going to win the Democratic nomination. I'm pretty, it's pretty clear. He has a huge lead in the polls. Uh, he's popular with the base. You know, he's, uh, he's kind of the opposite of Shapiro or McCormick, who will be probably be, who's running for the Republican nomination. He dresses casually. He wears sweats. He, you know, wants to, has been talking about legalized pot. He's very famous for having a big beard and fighting with Republicans on Twitter over the election. Um, I think he's almost certainly going to win the nomination tomorrow, barring any disaster. Um, like you said, he did have a stroke. The It does seem like it was caught early. Um, his wife noticed he wasn't doing too well. He was having AFib and uh, that caused a stroke. But we'll see how that goes uh, for the for the general. The Republican side, though, is very divided. I mean, you have McCormick, who was raised in Pennsylvania, veteran of the Gulf War, served in the Bush administration, very mainstream Republican, one of the few to say he holds Trump responsible for what happened on January 6th, which of course, was the reason he never got an endorsement. Um, Dr. Oz has been sucking all the air out of the room. And I think you asked why the governor's race isn't getting that much attention. I think because Oz has been getting all the attention. He's a celebrity. He's been endorsed by Trump. He's actually has a slight lead in the polls right now. And if I were a betting man, I would bet that he wins the Republican nomination. I don't think McCormick's support is strong enough to overcome that Trump endorsement. The big news recently has been the surge of Kathy Barnett to the front of the pack. And she's been running for a year, but uh, she's a talk show host on a, on a Christian radio station, commentator, um, was very critical of Trump four years ago, but is now a full Trump supporter. Um, she's gotten a lot of criticism lately because they've dug up some anti-Muslim and LGBT tweets, but she denies having said it or say it was out of context and so forth. Her, the only endorsement she had up until this point was Mike Flynn, um, but Trump has said that she'd never win an election. If she did, she would be, I think, the first black Republican woman in the Senate. Um, so that's interesting. But she's really in the last two weeks, come on, a couple of weeks, come on strong. She's got an infusion of money from some people and uh, is really running a very aggressive campaign. And that's kind of put some panic into the Republican Party because Oz, you know, even with the Trump endorsement, the feeling is that he wouldn't be too far out of the mainstream. Um, and he's got some wacky medical ideas, but I think politically he'd fall in line with most of the Republican Party wherever they're going at that moment. Uh, McCormick obviously is a very mainstream Republican. Fetterman's very much a wild card. So uh, not Fetterman. Uh, Barnett is very much a wild card. So nobody really knows what she'd do. And the perception is that she has too many liabilities to be to win a close race. This is the open seat that Pat Toomey is leaving. Um, Toomey did endorse someone early, but his endorsement carries no weight in this state because he voted for to impeach Donald Trump. So uh, he's port, sort of persona non grata among the Republican base. Um, Barnett, it should be noted, is getting heavily attacked by the Trump people. Uh, yep. Very, It's getting really ugly, quite frankly, uh, especially over the weekend. They're calling into question her military service. They're bringing up all sorts of things. Uh, that's that's going to get ugly right on down to the wire on this. Let me just ask you, because I'll give you my opinion. I'm not in Pennsylvania. I'm not voting on this race. Uh, Oz is a complete non-starter with me because of his deep, well-documented ties with uh, Erdogan and Turkey. Um, is that playing locally? I know the uh, Oz people are trying to deflect that, but now there's news out that he voted in a Turkish election as recently as 2018. Is this something at the end of the race that might start swaying it? Because he's not up by all that much. A couple swing points, and there's quite a lot of undecided in this race, as our buddy Joe pointed out. I think this is completely unpredictable. It's a three-way tie. I mean, Barnett, the problem is her surge was late. She was a fringe candidate up until a few weeks ago. So she's never, no one's ever done the op research on her. 
So when you read articles, I was reading articles about her this morning and every article says she did this according to her website. She was this according to her website. She was that according to her website. They're all going to her website to see what her biography is because no one's actually done any op research on her. And so that's what I think is scaring the Republicans. I, if she wins the nomination, I, they will rally up and back her. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. I mean, the only candidate that they've turned on in recent years was Roy Moore. And even that was kind of, you know, shady, a little bit shady at times. But um, I, I, if she wins, they will back her. But I'm, I'm not, I think if you have, hold my gun to my head and say, make a prediction, I'm going to say it's Oz, just because he has the name recognition. But any of these three candidates can win. Nothing would surprise me coming out of this race. Does Oz win the general election? I don't want to make a prediction that way. It's it, the there is so much yet to happen in politics. It depends on what's going on with inflation. It depends on what's going on with the economy. It depends on what's going on with the Biden administration. I think it's going to be close enough that that you could call it, call it a toss up. And I think most the last time I checked, most of the uh, sites had it as a as a toss up. I think it's going to be a very crazy race if it's Fetterman versus Oz, because you're talking about two very outsized personalities uh, that have uh, a lot of stuff people can go after. Yeah, and it's one of the rare seats that the Democrats think they can get in the Senate, so it's going to be all hands to the pump trying to win that race. All oh, right. yeah. I'm expecting by November, this is going to be between the governor's race and the Senate race. This is going to be the center of a lot of national tension. Yeah, I agree with you. This and Georgia are the two I've been saying from the beginning. Those are going to be kind of the, the watermarks on where we're going with this stuff. All right. That was Michael Siegel, Pennsylvania resident. When we come back from the break, we're going to go to Dr. Michael Siegel, flyer of spacecraft and knower of astrological things, because he's just beside himself giddy with one of the biggest uh, scientific discoveries in quite some time. I'll let him explain it. Uh, we may know what's at the middle of the center of the universe. No, it's not our political leaders who all seem to think they are. We actually have some imaging. We'll talk about that with Dr. Michael Siegel when we come back on Hardtail right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, in the best of the Star Trek movies, Star Trek V, where they went to the center of the universe and asked God why he needed a starship, uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, we actually got a glimpse at the center of the galaxy here in the last few days. Um, I'm making a little bit of light of it, but this is actually a really, really, really big deal scientifically. And it? it's right over your left shoulder. Uh, it looks like kind of other way. There you go. Military left, my friend. Military left. Um, it, it, it looks like a blurry round image. This is a really big, um, I don't even know. You quantify it for me. How big a deal in science is this? Um, it's a pretty big deal. So the story here is that when radio astronomy was invented a century ago, um, they turned their radio telescopes to the sky and there was something very loud in the direction of Sagittarius, the constellation Sagittarius, and took decades to figure out what it was. But what they figured it out was that they think it's a very massive black hole. Black, most black holes that we deal with in the nearby universe come from stars. Giant stars collapse, 
They leave behind this core that's so dense that not even light can escape, and that's a black hole. But it turns out almost all galaxies have a supermassive black hole in their core, weighing millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. And these were created in the early universe. Black holes move towards the center of these galaxies, form these massive leviathons. For a long time, they're gobbling up material. They form these massive disks of material swirling into them that are so hot and bright, they can outshine the entire galaxy. But then they mature, they settle down, and they go quiet. Um, ours has been estimated to weigh about 4 million times the mass of the sun. And when I did my um, senior thesis in college back in the late uh, Triassic, um, I did my it on the galactic center and the, we had indirect evidence that there was a black hole there. And then some scientists measured the motions of stars and seeing how much gravity they were responding to. And uh, this won a Nobel prize a couple of years ago because they found out that they were orbiting something that was dark, didn't give off a lot of light, but weighed 4 million times the mass of the sun that can only be a massive black hole. So the new result is that these, this, the Event Horizon Telescope, which is a whole bunch of radio telescopes all over the world, that combine their signals so they can resolve detail as though it were a telescope as big as the planet, uh, image the center of our galaxy. And they see what you see in this image, if you Google it, or if you're watching on the video, it's a, like a ring of orange light. That is a accretion disk, a disk of material swirling into the black hole. And so that's, you, you, then you see this dark center, that's the shadow of the black hole. It looks like a donut. And in fact, in honor of it, uh, Krispy Kreme had a free donut day on Friday, uh, free glazed donut day. And then you see lumps in it from material that's, that's being absorbed. And so this is, the black holes, while they are very heavy, they're small, almost by definition. If you compress the sun to a black hole, it would be the size of the earth. If you compress the earth to a black hole, it would be the size of a baseball. If you compress me to a black hole, it'd be, I'd be the size of an atom. You know, what defines a black hole isn't so much how much mass it has, but how compact it is. And this thing is smaller than the orbit of Venus. And it's 25,000 light years away. And so to resolve that kind of detail is just unbelievable. Now, talk, talk to us in, in ways we can understand here. The theory of all this was we knew there had to be something powerful at the center of the galaxy because, lack of a better way of explaining it, all this stuff is spinning and rotating, so there's got to be a pivot point there somewhere. So yep. the theory behind all this was there has to be something, black hole or otherwise, with enough uh, gravitational force behind it to make all this giant uh, galactic mechanisms work. So we kind of knew what this was. How do we go from that theory to looking at that blurry donut, you call it, and then are you working backwards from the picture to the theory? Are you going from the theory to the donut? Just practically speaking, how do you approach something that is so big uh, theoretically like this? Well, the theory came along a few decades ago when we realized there was something very compact. I mean, we've known, about, we've known theoretically about black holes for a century. We've been able to detect them by that material swirling. And I mean, black holes are black, they don't give off light, but that material swirling into them gives off enormous amounts of light. So we first detected those in the 1960s. And the spacecraft I work with does a lot of studies of black holes uh, this way. But the one in the galactic center was so far away and shrouded in so much dust and gas in between us and the black hole, and just so small that we couldn't 
you know, see it directly like this. And so that motivated the theory, motivated the observations, but this telescope they've built, this collaboration, the Event Horizon Telescope is just so powerful. It can address issues like this and get us direct images. And by getting these direct images, we understand a lot more about how these accretion disks work, how black holes work, how galaxies are powered and so forth. So there's, I mean, it's not just a pretty picture. There's enormous amount of confirmation of science coming out of this. There are aspects of the theory of relativity that were confirmed by this image. We can measure how fast, I mean, thing, this, things around this black hole orbit on the time scale of days to months. So we can actually see things moving around here. And they're hoping with more data, we can actually get a movie showing the material swirling into the black hole. I mean, that's something that before you only saw in bad Disney movies, and now we're going to see it for real. What's the what's the time span we're looking at? Because I know people watched Interstellar and they they joked about, you know, hey, this maneuver is going to cost us 40 years and this sort of stuff. When you're talking about minute delays and stuff, that what's the actual time you're talking about when you see something swirling around an event horizon like that? Is it that simple? Is it like, oh, well, you go another inch in and that's a year? Or is it really on a simple scale like that? Well, the, the theory of general relativity predicts that gravity slows down time. When, you know, and this is confirmed every day. You have a phone, I have a phone, you have a GPS. The GPS satellites are 20,000 kilometers up. They have to correct their clocks because time passes more slowly for us on the surface of the earth than it does 20,000 miles away. So the closer you get to a gravitational force, the slower time runs. So that's what in the movie Interstellar they're doing. When they get close to the black hole, time passes much more slowly for them. So back on earth, 50 years are passing where only minutes are passing for them. And eventually when you get to the event horizon, time stops completely as far as we know. And so, yeah, we see things from our perspectives, our objective perspective happening on minutes or hours timescales near the, the center of the black hole. Whereas if you were there, these would be taking years or even centuries for these events to transpire. It's one of those mind bending concepts that time is not a constant. We, you were used to time as being just a series of moments, but time is a dimension like space. It can be distorted by gravity, by motion, by other things. That was the breakthrough, the real conceptual breakthrough Einstein made that time is a thing, not just the passage of, of seconds. Yeah, and you've written about it before, and I think it's kind of it's very lyrical and beautiful, but you said astronomy really is almost like looking backwards in time more than a science of what you're actually looking at and observing. Yeah, we um, see this this black hole as it was 26,000 years ago. Wow, that's that that makes my head hurt. I'm glad there's <laughs> smart people like you to explain these things to me. Dr. Michael Siegel, uh, astronomer. See, I went through a whole interview with that without calling it astrology. I'm very proud of myself. Usually I slip up at least once. Um, <laughs> you do great work, sir. He's so legit that when we first started recording, he said, hold on a second. I got to send a command to the spacecraft real quick. He's that good. Uh, talking a little politics today, which is a little different. You do great work. Tell folks where they can find your writing and follow you on social media. My friend, as the street continues as the most vested and saw and seen and heard of the herd tell guests uh you just go to uh www.ordinary-times.com i write there uh, usually at least once a week with throughput which is on science occasionally about uh politics and from there you can find me on twitter and other places and uh of course always a pleasure to be here yeah, and you're the absolute best, my friend. Everything he does at Ordinary Times is fantastic. Read his stuff. Make sure you check out his YouTube channel because he reviews uh, movies for science fiction purposes. If they're scientifically accurate, he does great work. Michael Siegel, my friend, 
Uh, great work on the griddle on the Twitter Supper Club, by the way. I've been watching that. Uh, talk again soon, my friend. All right. No problem. Thank you, sir. tell he is back and he's one of our favorites good friend of ours eric garcia he's an ace reporter he covers congress and stuff but he's also got a great book out uh we are not broken about autism if you haven't read it yet go find it it's excellent he did a long form podcast with us right here on her tell go back and listen to that one of the best ones we've ever done in the top three listen to podcasts we have ever done eric how are you today my friend doing all right how you doing my friend I always enjoy talking to you. We're going to talk Congress and politics and your day job here in just a little bit. But I want to start on uh, this disability thing for a second, because we had a viral video go around. You commented it on Twitter. I commented on it on Twitter. Um, This young lady, Elizabeth Bonker, um, who was the valedictorian of her class, she got to give the speech. The thing is, with her particular uh, disability set, She's nonverbal or limited verbal. I'll let you set up the story here because the way it kind of went viral and it was a feel good story and the vast majority of people treated it that way. And, but there was an element. So I want you to set this up for what this young lady did and what it meant for her to give a valedictorian speech in the first place. Yeah. So it looks like this young lady, her name was Elizabeth Bonker. She graduated valedictorian. She's a non-speaking autistic uh, woman. And um, she apparently you know, had trouble autism is a, is a communication disorder and a lot of autistic people, uh, you know, can't speak. And apparently she was able to do this because she had a communication device. But the thing that stood out to me was she talked about was, I think that it was framed as a feel good story as, wow, look at this autistic person who graduated college. And that's amazing. And I'm not taking away from that is amazing. But like, when I think about it, I'm like, why, why do we think that's amazing? Well, it's because we don't think that autistic people can go to college. And she specifically said it was because she had the help of a support worker who, or a support person who, you know, and offered this service for typing devices. Unfortunately, a lot of autistic people don't get those devices and don't get those tools. So I think that is one of the other things. And I think the, the other thing that stood out to me was uh, Ms. Bonker mentioned that uh, her principal said that R word uh, couldn't be valedictorian. And I think that it was framed as a way of, oh, wow, she overcame being this. But I, was, I remember being really kind of disturbed by that. I was like, this person, her her principal said that? Uh, excuse me? Um, so, 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 I mean, I, I think that it was, I, I don't, I, I, I don't want to come off as being, as, as taking away from her. She 
obviously accomplished an amazing thing. But I think what I would, what it ended up feeling was like, I think that autistic people I know who shared it, shared it for very different reasons than the general public. A lot of people on Twitter was like, I'm not crying, you're crying, or this is so inspirational, things like that. And I, and I was, it, it, the coverage felt almost lacking. That's not to say some uh, NPR did a great example of like what the program she was doing and what she wants to do and what she wants to, you know, but, but a lot of it just felt like, uh, filler kind of non-substantive and that really kind of I really didn't like the way that it was framed yeah we talked about this when we covered your book on her tell and folks need to go back and listen to that conversation I'm really right. proud of it it was fantastic but when you did your book you talked to some of these families and these people that do this I just don't think we've really set in how much technology opens doors like this for it. And it may, it stops where, you know, before like my mom's generation, she was a special ed teacher. It was all on the special ed teachers and the care providers to do this. You don't have to have any special training to get these people technology things that can do a lot of the lifting for you and really open up their world. Can't you? You do not need as much training or you don't, you don't need to necessarily be a specialist uh, it opens plenty of doors, but like when I tweeted this out, you know, like I got some responses about like how this is amazing. This is something that like is, is going to change kids' lives or, or, or autistic adults' lives. I was just talking, uh, one young gentleman who everybody needs to know about, his name is Hari Srinivasan. This weekend, he just graduated from Cal. I interviewed him for my book. Uh, he is not speaking same deal. He, you know, for a long time, people didn't assume anything from him or didn't expect anything from him. He just graduated from Cal. He's now on the federal government's advisory committee uh, uh, for autism. Uh, unbelievably brilliant, unbelievably talented. And uh, he's a poet, he's a writer. Uh, and it, it, it was just that small thing of like this piece of technology and this service open countless doors for him. And I did, I did another, uh, I did another event in the Bay Area of California with another young man. Uh, I believe his name is Benjamin Bro, who, uh, who, who is not speaking and he does videos uh, where, where he's not speaking. So these, these tools can do tons of things. It's just a matter of how available they are and how much, uh, you, you know, how much funding it is. Cause it still is, it's, you know, there's, there's scarce resources. So like, the technology exists now. It's a matter of putting it in as many people's hands as possible. You use the term, and I've used it before in my writing, inspiration porn. Uh, this this dovetails with other kind of porn that I've used, like poverty tourism porn that we have yeah. in my beloved West Virginia. We have a tendency to drive by these stories, and you mentioned it. It's an inspirational story. People do that. I'm not crying. You're not crying. That's all well and good. I think where this gets important, though, is taking that next step of going, and you brought it up when you did your little tweet thread about this, of, okay, but let's talk about the practical parts that made this work, because that's where this stuff really starts changing, and then this shouldn't be abnormal, this should be a normal thing, because these people should have this ability and these resources all along. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, you, you know, because like I mean, I think when I went, when I, to your point, when I went to West Virginia, even for my book and about about poverty porn, I was really adamant about not being uh, condescending toward West Virginia. And I think it's because I'm I'm a person with a disability, and I've seen like when people kind of commodify it. And I should say the term inspiration porn was created by the late Stella Young, uh, one of the. Um, who passed away a long time ago. She was a a disability rights activist. And I think that the thing about it, you know, the term inspiration porn or poverty porn is that it's not meant for the person 
who the, who's the subject of it. It's meant for the consumer to consume either to say, oh, look at these poor, these poor people in West Virginia, or look at this poor disabled person who is so inspiring. And I think my, my whenever I, you know, because a lot of people, because um, like the word inspiration is really strange, isn't it? Because like a lot of autistic people have told me after I wrote my book, you know, you've inspired me. And I'm like, great. I'm, I'm really happy that I'm able to provide that example. But like, I think what a lot of people say to me who aren't autistic or who aren't disabled, I was like, you're so inspiring. I'm like, okay, I inspired you to do what, you know? What do you, did, did I inspire you to just deal with your daily lives or did I inspire you to change things or did I inspire you to look at autistic people differently? Did I inspire you to make things better for autistic or disabled people? What did I inspire you to do? So inspiration is nice, but like, you know, I think about it, it's like inspired, it's like put in breath, like you, you breathe in life into something that's literally like the roots of the word. So like, I think about it, it's like, okay, what did I breathe in life for you to do, you know? Talking to Eric Garcia, our good friend, great reporter. The book he wrote on autism is We Are Not Broken. It's fantastic. You can find it anywhere. Just Google it. It'll pop right up. Um, let's do a little bit of nomenclature while we're on the subject, though. We're seeing the word more and more ableism. Uh, both yes. in reporting, people are pushing back on it a little bit, but you're the expert on this stuff. Define that word so that it's properly used, because I've seen it used both ways, where it's used as a real good tool to kind of dig into stuff. I've also seen that term abused quite a bit, especially online yeah. and social media. Define that word and how we should and shouldn't be using it, if you would, please. Yeah, so I, you know, I am, you know, I do a lot of work on this, but like I, I, I borrow from what... So like, I, I'm not, you know, this is from one other people who said, ableism to me and from what a lot of other people have said is any type of barrier that prevents a person with a disability from living life in a way that any person without a disability could. So this could be anything from uh, the lack of an elevator in a, um, in, you know, in a hotel building, or it could be uh, the lack of accommodations in a school, uh, you, you know, the lack of disability, of enough disability services in a school. It could be uh, a, uh, a television show using the R word or depict using a kind of demeaning depiction of a person with a disability. Ableism is uh, is basically anything that perpetuates the barriers that uh, people with disabilities have. So that is a very, very broad statement. And I keep it intentionally broad because there's a lot of people who argue different things who are smarter than me. I'm still learning about it. But I think that's what I, that, that to me is as broad of a term as possible, I think. Yeah, Eric Garcia joining us. Let's talk about something that is very pertinent to current events when it comes to disability rights. Uh, voting is underway right now. One yes. thing that came out of the COVID moves to change voting laws that was kind of unintentional was it actually opened up a lot of disability type stuff for voters because it expanded yes. how people voted. I, I will admit, I never really thought about this this much until 2016. I got out of the hospital right before the election. I went to vote. It was actually the first time I'd really been out of the house after being in the hospital for multiple months, I had to use the ADA station because I couldn't stand up. I still had tubes in me. I had the backpack with the pumps and all that. 
And the poll worker didn't really know what to do with me because they weren't well. And I don't want to bang on them. They just weren't well trained. To do it. You know, if I, right. I'm like, look, it's surgically attached. No, I can't put my bag down. This kind of thing is like I had to sit down to vote. It changed my perspective totally. You've talked about it before. This is going to be the first election after a lot of those COVID restrictions. But there was a lot of disability positive things that came out of that that we need to apply to elections, isn't there? Yes. So the interesting thing, a lot of people didn't know that I didn't know until uh, until reports came out. And I believe there was, I, I have the report in front of me that uh, disability turnout increased six percentage points to 62% in 2020. Now, this isn't to say that uh, there weren't barriers. I think of the late, uh, she just passed away, Cheryl Grossman, who was a disability rights activist not too far from here in Maryland. Uh, you know, for example, because people with chronic illnesses couldn't go out, they had to post their ballot on the door, and that might have compromised, you know, the secrecy of the ballot. But for a lot of people with disability, mail-in ballots uh, or drop boxes. Uh, opened up, uh, literally opened up doors and barriers that otherwise did not exist. Incidentally enough, there was, uh, I, I, was uh, I know a few people with disabilities who orchestrated during the Georgia runoffs, orchestrated drives for like, like literally driving people with disabilities with mobility impairments to go drop off their, their ballots and drop boxes. So that was one of those things that in a weird way, Innate, while COVID, COVID was such a, it was it was such a double-edged sword for so many people with disabilities because on one end you had students with disabilities not being able to get their uh, their services through their IEPs. At the same time, a lot of college students with disabilities were able to, their 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 classrooms became much more accessible. On one end, it was you know a lot of people in congregate care settings died, uh, and the or, or with or a lot of people with you know comorbidities died before the vaccine came out. On the other, it was, uh, you, you know, you had an increase in, uh, in disability voting turnout. So it was so, so you know, it, it was such a, it was such a difficult time for a lot of people with disabilities, you know, as a whole, and the pandemic still is. But that was one of the most fascinating things was you saw this uh, incredible a show of force for voters with disabilities when typically, as you said before, there are no, there, you know, a lot of uh, poll stations still aren't as ADA, ADA accessible. Uh, a good friend of ours, somebody you and I both follow, Grace Panetta, she's noted that a lot of Native American polling stations uh, don't, aren't necessarily uh, ADA accessible. It's not because of uh, any kind of malice or anything like that, but it's just because they don't, Native American communities often don't have the resources. So this is a real thing. Yeah, and getting to experience, to my own shame, I'll put my hand up and wear that hat. Uh, I should have thought of it ahead of time, but when you experience it, you notice yeah. it really, really. Like, I can't stand here for five minutes and read this ballot. I gotta, I, I gotta sit down and just yeah, little exactly. stuff like that. And mine was medical, so it was temporary, but still, uh, something to keep your mind on. Make sure you're checking on your friend. This is a good point to do a public service announcement too. If you have friends and family members with disabilities go with them to vote. They may need a little bit of help. That is allowed yes. under the laws. Uh, make sure you do that. Eric Garcia joining us. We're going to take a quick break on Hertel. We come back, going to make him put his day job hat back on, talk a little Congress, uh, talk about what our Congress critters are up to, midterm elections, all that good stuff. The great Eric Garcia, our good friend. More Hertel with him right after this. I drop bombs here.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Eric Garcia, ace reporter. He writes for The Independent. He contributes all over the place. Uh, we've talked about his uh, passion before. Now we're going to talk about his day job. He covers Congress. Just turn down the noise force for a second. We know it's a midterm election. We know we got some really big stuff going on. Abortion, Ukraine. Uh, now we're going to probably do a gun debate again because of the, the mass shooting in Buffalo. What's the feeling in Congress about how the midterms are going? Because those folks don't lie. Uh, they're the ones with the skin in the game. We're hearing a lot of talk about front benchers, back benchers, uh, different factions. What, what's the mood in the halls of Congress right now? So I think right now, so last week there was the vote on, um, there, there was the vote on uh, the Women's Health Protection Act, which was Democrats legislation on Roe v. Wade. Uh, basically, they said to codify it. Republicans said it went too far and they said it went beyond Roe. Uh, uh, Senator Susan Collins and Senator Lisa Murkowski said it, you know, they just wanted the strict, straight protections for Roe. So, but what's funny about it is that there was almost this feeling of this was a meaningless vote. Not a lot of senators were sitting in their desks during the vote. You know, people were filing in and out. You, you didn't get the feeling that this was very high stakes. And I think that for a lot of, I think, I think for that reason, there was almost kind of this feeling. I asked Senator Gary Peters, I was like, do you think this, uh, will this have any kind of effect? I said, the only senator who you guys really want to get on, on record is Ron Johnson because he's, because the other states, he's Senator Richard Burr's retiring, Senator uh, Pat Toomey's retiring. Those are the only two real flippable seats. And he says, we're going to find out. So there was almost kind of this feeling of, eh, you know, like, this, this, this has no, Republicans kind of, well, that's Democrats, and then Democrats were kind of like, we know that we, we know that this isn't going to pass. We know there's no chance of it passing. And that was even before Joe Manchin uh, came out against it. So it didn't even need a filibuster because it was 40, 51-49. Uh, so, so, so there was that. I think the other thing that everybody's focusing on right now is there is, you know, talk about passing the Ukraine aid. It passed uh, overwhelmingly uh, on the House side. It was going to pass on uh, last week, uh, I think on Thursday or, fr uh, Thursday or Friday, then Rand Paul blocked it. Uh, it's a $40 billion package to Ukraine and he just wanted, uh, he wanted to add like some new parts right on the floor. He did not even in committee. But I think there's this feeling in the midterm. I think Democrats recognize, okay, we might lose the House. It looks pretty clear that we might so we're going to just focus on doing what we want, you know, passing stuff we want to do. Right now, of course, they had to focus on the, uh, right now they're already doing legislation on the baby formula shortage. I don't know how, if even if the legislation were to pass, if it would go through the Senate, because uh, there's talk about, you know, importing, uh, increasing imports from uh, from Latin America countries. But again, it feels like a lot, the thing of it is, is that you're starting to see people go from Governing mode to campaign mode, you're going to see that a lot in the coming months as primaries roll around. Uh, tomorrow is the beginning. Uh, tomorrow, North Carolina and Pennsylvania have their primaries uh, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, North Carolina's most famous freshman, Madison Cawthorn, is up in a tough primary. Uh, so, so right now, I think there's kind of this feeling of go, doing the stuff they need to do 
which is pass Ukraine aid. They already passed the omnibus spending bill. They're trying to pass a COVID relief package. And there's kind of just this feeling of we need to pass stuff to at least show our voters we're trying to do something, but it's not really going to get done. You're going to see that you see the same thing with gun stuff. They're probably going to have a vote on the gun stuff, one kind of vote on guns, but they know it's not going to pass with a 50 50 Senate. So. So lots of failure theater is what you're telling me here. Uh, failure, that's a good that's a good line. Failure theater. It's it's and, and one of the things that I think is that a lot of Democrats are saying we want to at least show that we're trying. And I don't know how much that motivates Democratic voters, because if you're a Democratic voter and you see both houses, you have both houses of Congress and the White House, you're kind of looking at like, uh, well, what in the Dickens is going on? Uh, I thought that, you know, we had a majority, but obviously there's the filibuster. Obviously, you have people like Joe Manchin and just cinema and even some moderates like Chris Coons and others. But like there's almost this feeling of what gives. Meanwhile, Republican turnout is already going to be high because it's a midterm. It's just a matter of is it going to, you know, so so I'm not convinced that it's going to uh, juice up Democratic turnout, at least for now, at least what polling says for now. Yeah. Uh, Eric Garcia, he's the congressional beat cover for the independent along with a lot of other places he writes uh you just mentioned north carolina one of those senators a lot of people may not even think of or talk about turns out he's been driving a whole lot of the news cycle the last few weeks you mentioned madison cawthorn uh did you know tom tillis was this much of a killer I knew he was a killer back when, because so I got my start covering uh, covering news back in, uh, back when I was a student at the University of North Carolina uh, and covering the General Assembly, like because I took a class where you had to cover the General Assembly because it wasn't too far away. Uh, and I kind of knew that Tom Tillis was a killer because he was, back in 2010, he was the one who raised all the money for and recruited all those candidates who helped Repo North Carolina Republicans take back both houses of the legislature for like the first time since 1898 and help them win a trifecta when McCrory won, who he's, he's known for a while uh, in, in 2012. He is often, uh, you know, he has his, you know, politically he's very vulnerable. His, his negatives have always been very high. Uh, even when, when he ran against Hagan, obviously that was a blood feud. And then even when he lost to Cal Cunningham, uh, his negative, he, he, you know, people's attitudes about Tom Tillis never really changed. But he, but he's, you know, he's a silent killer. And when he wants to be, when he wants to be ruthless, he can be ruthless. Uh, I've said in the past, he should be NRS. If Republicans were smart, they'd make him NRSC chairman because he knows how to win the suburban areas in North Carolina. Uh, and that's obviously a big place where Republicans are lacking right now. He's obviously a lot more astute. Uh, he comes from a suburban area, Cornelius, which is a suburb of Charlotte. Um, and, and yeah, like it doesn't surprise me that he's decided to go nuclear on uh, on Madison Cawthorn. And I have a piece that came, just came out this morning where I talk a little bit more about why he want why he decided to go in on Cawthorn. And just to be clear here, I think Cawthorn deserves every bit of this because he shouldn't have been in there in the first place. But it's pretty clear that I, I think it's somewhat organic. But whoever called the code red down on Madison Cawthorn, I think a lot of those roads go to Tom Tillis and his network. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that one of the things that happened was, if you remember, uh, he tried switching districts uh, and. Uh, when they did, when North Carolina did redistricting, and then Speaker, it was a district that Speaker Tim Moore, who was Tillis' successor, was going to try to uh, fill. And Cawthorn called him a go along to get along guy, which is weird because as long as I've known Tim Moore, he's 
he may not be MAGA, but he's conservative. He was the guy behind the bathroom. He's not shy and subtle, and you don't have to go looking for him when you cover North Carolina state politics. No, he, he's he's very conservative. So when Cawthorn called him a go-along to get along, I was like, excuse me? <laughs> this this guy's conservative. Um but, but I think that that was, that was the beginning. And of course, he that was a Charlotte dist- area district. And Tillis was like, okay, you tried to encroach on my home turf and you're trying to undo this uh, machine that I've built. And credit to Tillis and to Art Pope and Phil Berger and to a lesser extent, Pat McCrory, that we kind of more rode the wave than he actually did anything to, to facilitate the win. Uh, they are responsible for build making North Carolina, turning it from a purple state to a pinkish state. And to, to almost, I'd argue, a red state in the next few years. Uh, so, so I think that Tillis was kind of like, okay, you get, you, okay, you, okay, tough guy, you, you, you know, you, you want to do this? Okay, we're gonna, you know, you mentioned uh, yesterday on Twitter, you mentioned the the Al Pacino, Glenn Gary, Glenn, uh, Glenn Ross yeah, uh, monologue. He's like, how dare you speak amongst men, you child? Yeah, he uh, Madison's getting a lecture in how politics actually work by people who are masters at making the machinery go. Uh, yes. And by the way, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. May he be gone from our politics forever. I hope he gets some help for himself. He's clearly not yeah. all there. Uh, let, let's talk about something else real quick. We're going to do a lot of banging on the Democrats in this midterm just because historically, yeah. cyclically, they're going to have a rough year. They're going to have a rough I year. I still think, though, just in the interest of being a little fair here, just because they win ain't going to solve all their problems. I think the Republicans are going to have a mess on their hands come January when leadership posts come up. What's the feeling? Because Kevin McCarthy, it keeps bubbling up and bubbling up and bubble. He does not. Ha- he may have the votes, but he doesn't have the confidence of this caucus, does he? Well, you just look last week with the vote on Ukraine aid. Fifty-seven Republicans voted against Ukraine aid. A lot of it was the usual suspects. Um, but like, incidentally enough, somebody you know, Virginia Representative Virginia Fox, who's a longtime Republican legislator from North Carolina, before the vote, I asked, I was like, "How are you going to vote on this?" And she eventually voted yes, but she says, "I know when it, when it'll actually vote when when the vote will actually come." And that to me, uh, you know, Representative Rodney Davis also later voted for it. I caught him in the hallways drinking a can of beer as he was leaving Scalise's office, um, <laughs> which shows you how seriously they take it. Uh, he was just like, I'll let you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll figure out how I vote when it comes. There's definitely this feeling that McCarthy doesn't have the support of the base or the support of the, the most conservative voices. And I should say this was before um the the Jonathan Martin Alex Burns book and the audio that was leaked about him saying you know Trump should resign or I'm going to tell him to resign there was always this feeling that he's not there was always this feeling that he wasn't the closer to use an NBA analogy because it's the NBA you know he's not going to be the guy who you need in game seven um he's more like James Harden on the Philadelphia 76ers now uh, and, I, and I say that with every, you know, subtlety and connotation that you can imagine. Uh, so so there, there's just this feeling that he's not the guy. He's not going to be the person who could facilitate things. He's not the guy who can uh, put up and mount a strong opposition to the Biden administration. He's not going to be seen as somebody who could partner with Mitch McConnell or if by some miracle Democrats hold on to the Senate, Chuck Schumer. Uh, he's not seen as the guy you 
tomorrow from another uh, Aaron Sorkin, tomorrow from an Aaron Sorkin movie. He's not a guy you want on that wall, so to speak. Okay, and that's all well and good. I agree with everything you just said. Um, Walter Jones, where are you when you need you? Y'all go, y'all go Google that one. The last time Kevin McCarthy came up, they had to go get Paul Ryan uh, and offer him the planet. And yeah. that was a Walter Jones production. We'll talk about that some other time. But that's all well and good. You got to have somebody that can beat him in the election, though. Is there anybody that's going to beat him in a con- caucus election for the speakership? You know, there there are definitely some people I've thought about. You know, I think Representative Jim Banks, uh, who's chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Uh, he is somebody who, who has it. I think, uh, I think Representative Steve Scalise, a lot of people in the conference like him. Uh, obviously, he was shot during, uh, during a congressional baseball practice uh, by some guy who like said he was a Bernie Sanders supporter and then Bernie denounced him on the floor. But, so, 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 uh, but he, he was paralyzed for a little bit, I believe, and he had to use a walker. Now he can walk, but uh, Scalise is somebody who a lot of people in the conference like. Uh, the, you, you know, there, there's always talk about somebody like Jim Jordan doing it. I don't think Jordan would actually want to lead the conference because uh, <laughs> that'd mean he'd actually have to work um, and he couldn't just, you know, puff his chest out. So the, but the, the question is, this is the ultimate problem with any of the um, people who move up uh, in Republican leadership, because John Boehner started out his career as a bomb thrower in Congress uh, and ended up by the end of it being, uh, of course, being education health committee chair, uh, education committee chairman and did No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy. He was seen as a heretic and he was ultimately booted out. Paul Ryan started out as kind of a hellraiser with Mike Pence coming up and they were they, they got elected around the same time. They, then eventually he was seen as insufficiently conservative. The difficulty for any um, Republican leader, and it's different a little bit for the Democrats, is that eventually you would, by virtue of having to govern and by virtue of having a Democratic president, you're going to be seen as insufficiently conservative. You're going to be seen as insufficient. You're going to be seen as a rhino. You're going to be seen as any of those things. And eventually people are going to get mad at you. And that's what led to John Boehner getting booted and Paul Ryan eventually saying forget this, I quit. Um, that's going to be that. So so the, the question about who would fit that mold, it's difficult to say, because even if that, even if, you know, and it looks like it would be a guy, uh, it might be, you know, some people talk about Elise Stefanik, but I don't think she has the votes yet. Uh, you, you know, but any guy or, or girl who gets to that point, eventually, be, by virtue of being in leadership, you're going to be seen as a rhino. So I don't know if anybody else could mount that kind of challenge. I think the best person, honestly, I think is Jim Banks, who's chairman of the, of the study committee. But that's just me. Yeah. And uh, keep an eye on Elise Stefanik because she didn't sell her soul just to be on the third post in the Republican no, Party. She she's didn't. got ambitions. Uh, but that's another story for another day. And that's also, by the way, why she's getting all the attack and flack with the New York thing, too. People want to knock, go ahead and knock her down now. A lot of machinations. Our friend Eric Garcia, he does great reporting work. He writes at The Independent. He also contributes to other places like MSNBC and all over. Um, But before you pump all those things, make sure you tell everybody where you can get the book. We started out talking about autism and spectrum and disabilities because it's such a great book. I've read it. I've had you on before about it. Uh, tell folks when they have find the book and then tell them about your social media and the political stuff. The page. Sure thing. Uh, we're not broken. Changing the autism conversation. It's out of bookstores. Now we got the paperback coming out August 2nd. Uh, you can pre-order those now. Uh, uh, the first people who post the, and I'll, I'll just do it. Let's just do a little giveaway. Why don't we? Uh, the first, uh, the first 50 people, the first, uh, yeah, 50 people who post a link 
uh, of this of this podcast uh, and a pre-order of the book will get a signed nameplate from me. Just DM me and we'll do that. You can follow me on social media at Eric M. Garcia. You can follow on, to- on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram at Eric M. Garcia 14. Uh, yeah. And I always love coming on here. I always love talking with Andrew. So. Yeah, let's just go ahead and pencil it in, man. That paperback comes out. We'll have you on, and we'll talk exclusively about the book because I want to update some of those stories. We've actually become Twitter buddies with a few of those folks, which is just too cool in my book. So absolutely, you can update yeah. the stories on some of those families because those were amazing people that made the book amazing. Those were absolutely. They're amazing people. I still talk with a lot of them, yeah. Let's let's plan on doing it. Uh, Eric Garcia, one of our favorites. Appreciate your work, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. favorites a man i greatly respect i'm proud to call him a colleague at ordinary-times.com we go to him in times of trouble but he's not mother mary he is dennis saunders our friend up in minneapolis minnesota uh my friend always great to have you on the program welcome back good to be back um we always joke every time i have you on when we pregame this i always say well one of these days we'll talk when there's not some kind of mass event going on (laughs) But yeah. unfortunately, you've been in Minneapolis the last couple of years. We all know the history there. You've been uh, disproportionately in the news for bad stuff. The thing in Buffalo, the shooting, we know the racial component now. We know quite a bit about the shooter uh, we covered on Hertel. Uh, I didn't use his name, but we read every single name of the victims, including the wounded. Before we get into the, the ugly side of this, just on a human level, because you've lived through this in Minneapolis a couple times now, Uh, You're also a pastor in that community. Just on a human level, what do you tell the people of Buffalo, that community, as they are on the very front end of this grieving process of dealing with this sort of thing? I guess you tell them that it's to, I think that you counter this situation with love and that you try to love each other and that you try to love each other across racial lines and sexual orientation and all of that, that you know, the person who came, the shooter basically was filled with a lot of hate um, for whatever reason. And I think that the best way that you can respond to that as a community is responding in some way with love and coming together, um, showing love to those around you, um, showing love to those who are, have been affected by this shooting. And I think that that's just the best answer you can do for times like this. I I keep saying it and I'm guilty of it. And I kind of, I talked about this on social media a little bit today and I got into a conversation privately with somebody who I, I, I greatly respect who is an expert on the field of race that I go to mm-hmm. on things like this privately. And I was like, you know, I keep saying this and I believe it. Uh, it's not that I don't believe it, that, you know, we don't have the conversations about race that we should have in America. But I, I've kind of come to a realization a little bit of like, it's almost like an advanced course in college. We don't have the prerequisites. People haven't done the required reading. There's not a common basis of knowledge to have a productive conversation about that. Um, and you brought it up before is like, um, I think it was John McWalter said, you know, if it's one side yelling and the other side not saying anything, that's not a conversation. 
Um, can you can you expand on that just for a second? Because you're another one of those people I go to. I was like, hey, you know, you tell me how this should go. That's where I'm at it on is like, I don't think we have a common basis. I don't think we even have the right vocabulary to discuss this. I don't think we understand our shared history and how we got here. Am I off base on any of that? No, you're not. I think one of the problems um, that we have really is we talk about the word conversation, but in some ways we don't really mean conversation. And I think actually, if we want to get towards uh, and moving forward in towards racial reconciliation, we really have to have a conversation. But a conversation means that each side is probably going to hear things that they don't want to hear. And um, I think that they still have to kind of remain engaged in discussion. Um, this is an issue that is always going to bring a lot of kind of dredge up a lot of bad feelings. And to me, the only way out of this is through it. And to do that, we have to have an honest discussion. And I think, you know, the other part of that is we have to also be able to see each other really as having a shared destiny. Um, we're Americans together. Um, we may come from different blocks, but at the basis, we are who we are. And I think one of the problems today is that we act as if um, the other side comes from another planet. And as long as we think that way, we don't think that there is something that grounds us together we're really just never going to move forward. I wonder, and this is going to be a touchy area. So you stop me if I get too far afield here, but okay. I just want to, I just, I, I got to talk about this, you know, cause it's just, um, we, we cover it and we write about it, but we don't talk about it. I know we need to talk about things like great replacement theory. I know we need to address the wide spectrum of prejudice, especially when the prejudice starts turning into out and out racism. I know we need to nip those things in the bud. I almost feel like, especially on social media, we get to where we start talking about things like the theory of it and the ideology of it and the history of it. And we almost use that as a skimming a rock across the pond where it's like, okay, well, we've, we've dressed that and addressed that now, but it's almost like we just use that as a skimming of the layer and we don't actually get into what's going on underneath it because we can go, oh, well, it's this bad theory. And if we just got rid of all the media outlets with all the bad theories, that's going to solve this problem. And I don't think we ever address the fact that, no, this is a human heart problem. This is a broken soul problem. This is beyond legislative and this is beyond policy. That's where my frustration is starting to come with this. Is, is that off base or is that something that's shared by other folks, do you think? No, I think it is. I think, you know, one of the problems I think has been that we see this as solely a political problem. And it's not simply a political problem. And where we see this kind of people engaging in these activities, there's a lot of things going on here. Some of that is economics. Some of that is people who feel disconnected from society. And part of it is also, as you would say, a heart problem. There's this sense of kind of twisted um, ethics and, and twisted emotions and this is really a time period where we need to see other institutions um, stepping up and, and taking apart, um, and especially in civil society, especially the church. 
um, that need to be able to reach out um, and be able to kind of build bridges, especially with people who may seem like they are very much loners because there had to be, you know, with the shooter, you have to wonder, was someone paying attention to what they were, what they were looking at on online? Um, were they someone that had hurt people to talk to? It, it doesn't seem, it seems like we have this society where we don't really pay attention to one another until something like this happens. And by that time, it's, it's almost too late. Yeah, talking to our friend Dennis Saunders. Um, I thought back to some other shootings we had. The Charleston Church shooting really always bothers me because he came in and sat down. Like he was there for a while. He talked to those people. He looked. He was there for a Bible study. Yeah, like like was it when you know, you know the the brokenness to be able to sit there. Like it's one thing to go in and just see people as targets. I I know that's dehumanizing, but I can kind of get my head around that but like somebody to do something like that. And then you have this individual who by his own admission, if we take the words that he wrote down um, as fact, and I have no reason to discount them, he took the last two years and purposefully stewed and marinated himself in this hatred stuff. I know everybody wants to go, we need to do something so this never happens again. I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that. Because if you've got somebody that just wants to silo themselves off from the world like that, and then they eat up all that hate, and then they make a plan like this, and I know there was the mental health flags that that came down, and we can talk about that in a minute. But as far as the radical the radicalization part of this, where his prejudice turned to outright hatred, which turned into racism, which turned into murderous intent, I I just don't know that there's a whole lot we can do about that, and and. Is it, it's like it's taboo for us to say there's not a lot we can do about that. But that's what it feels like. Is that, do you feel differently? I mean, I don't know how you solve that problem. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that I, that I don't think that there is one simple solution. I mean, obviously, whenever things like this happen, there are people who say, you know, if we just had better gun laws, this would go away. And I'm not opposed to that, but I don't know if that would be the thing. And, you know, I, I think part of it also is that as, as a society, we're not good at dealing with the problem of evil. Um, and I don't want to go as far as to say that some people are just plain evil, but there are people that engage in evil acts and we, and we need to kind of kind of deal with that. There is this thing out there and sometimes it is not so easily solved. There's no way, you know, it's not always a public policy issue. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that there's nothing we can do, but, but when you're dealing with something like this, I think it's hard. I think it's very difficult to find something to, to do. I'll, I'll ask this question as a philosophical question because I kind of know the answer, but I think we need to address it. Why is it that when people, you know, if you don't want to go so far as to say people are evil or inherently evil, although I, I believe they can be, let's just say they embrace evil or they've made a decision to be evil. Why does that always seem to manifest with things like race right off the bat? That seems to always be the, the bottom of the spiral when people go down that road. Why, why is that? Because it's easy to deal with the other. It's easy to try to make the other the bad person, whether that's a, um, 
someone who's black, whether it's someone who's gay, that's kind of what it is all about is that there's something going on with them. They may feel somehow deficient in some way or things are not going well in their life and pushing it off towards someone who is different from them is the easiest way to kind of assuage your hurt feelings. So I think that's what it's all about. We talk about it all the time on our show, you know, human nature is undefeated. And unfortunately, that's usually in a bad connotation that human nature is undefeated. However, uh, when we were going through the list of the victims here, I was struck by a couple of things. This is a very tight in neighborhood. It is a, you know, lower, lower middle class and below neighborhood. They talked about this uh, particular grocery store being, you know, kind of the only grocery store in kind of a food desert. I was struck when they listed the names, every single one of them uh, went to such and such church. Uh, the one uh, lady, the one of the younger people killed was 32 years old. She was there helping her brother during a bone marrow transplant, just happened to be there for the, you know, stories like this. We know about the security guard now. Um, again, because you went through this in many, Minneapolis and St. Paul and that area, all the different things that have gone on. Talk about when the news cameras stop, you know, in three months, two months, whenever it is, and the cameras leave. What's the work that has to go into a community to start trying to put it back together after one of these major news events? Because you've lived through that two or three times now in the last few years, unfortunately. Talk about that because that's when the real healing and work of, okay, what's our community after this? That's when that work really starts, isn't it? It is. And I think some of it's going to have to be um, mental health care professionals that are going to have to be on hand. Um, part of it is probably doing a lot of honest talk about race because obviously this is not a surprise that it's still a problem. And you know the, the nature of this crime, where someone literally traveled, was it two or three hours to go to do this? Um, that's a deep well of hatred, and so we have to kind of talk about that. And I think that that has to still happen. Um, I think other communities, communities around that area. Um, have to keep checking in, doing whatever, creating relationships maybe with, the, with churches in that area. Um, because the people who were, live in those neighborhoods, um, obviously the, the victim, the family of victims, but also people who are um, just living in that community who may have known them or, or, or however, are all gonna need help for months, if not years. Um, down the road. And I, I think the one thing that really does concern me, and this might seem weird, is, um, and you just talked about it, is what's going to happen to that supermarket? Um, because a lot of areas where African Americans live tend to be food deserts. Um, you know, one of the things that happened here in Minneapolis um, is we had a few. Um, grocery stores that were um, torched in, in different communities and that did leave a, literally a food desert um, for a certain amount of time. Uh, one of the um, stores, um, as they were remodeling uh, two of their locations that had been damaged, they um, had buses that would take them to another of their locations nearby. 
Um, and they also made a, a, a deliberate um, intent to stay in those communities. Um, that's kind of a question I have is I hope that this supermarket chain will, will make a commitment to stay and um, continue to serve that community. Yeah, Tops is, uh, they, we went through the list of the local communities and charities. You can go back on the show notes from Tuesday's show. Uh, we have a links there, uh, charity stuff in that community, directly into that community. It's one of the things Tops said they were running shuttle buses to other, because obviously it's still a crime scene, so they couldn't open it if they yeah. want to. Uh, they were running shuttle buses to other places from there because I think they said something like 80% of the customers there walk there, which is mm. not uncommon in neighborhoods like that. Yeah, so it's a it's great not. point that you raised. Uh, Dennis Saunders joining us. This is a grown folk talk. It's a tough talk, but that's why we bring Dennis on because we can ask these hard questions and try to hash them out. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We'll continue to talk about Buffalo. Also talk about some writing that he did before the Buffalo thing happened uh, based off his of you know, why aren't our po politics going towards the big tents? Why are they getting more defined? We know there's money involved and power involved in that, but there's real world consequences of that. Is this one of them? We'll talk about that more with our friend Dennis Saunders on Hertel right after this. Hertel Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Dennis Saunders joining us. Uh, had to take a quick break while I went on a rant about other things that aren't fit for air, but that's how we do things. Uh, this is what he does. He listens to me rant and then he gives me good wise counsel. You get to share in that today. Uh, to put a bow on the Buffalo uh, massacre before we move on to a few other things, how does it land with you? Because I think part of the problem with situations like this is we have the ability now to have our own select media. We have our own information rotations. We have our own little siphons that we filter information into. This is a big, diverse country. Um, I'm not a black man. You are. I imagine this hits differently for you. I know because you've been in a community like Minneapolis that it definitely hits different because of what y'all been through the last few years. So just tell me so that the audience can hear it and I can hear it. When this happens, what was your reaction to it once we found out what was actually happening here? Well, my first thought was, crap, um, this is happening. And, um, you know, when I was uh, um, growing up, my, my dad, who grew up in um, Jim Crow, Louisiana, would always kind of be concerned because um, I, growing up in the 80s in Michigan, I had a lot of friends and uh, went to a Catholic high school. And of course, a lot of the friends were white and um, also had a lot of female um, white friends. And so, you know, we would go out and back in those days, you just kind of, I wasn't thinking about anything dangerous and all that, but he was always concerned. And I think he was always worried because of course he grew up in a time when, you know, obviously people were lynched because they smiled at a white woman. And um, I think that that is the thing that sometimes you live with is, you know, are you at this event or doing this and could that put you in, um, in danger? Um, those kind of things still exist. And I don't want to make it sound like everything or 
right, you know, to be African American, it's always to, to live in fear. That's not the case. But there are those situations where you have to wonder. And I think, especially now, it just seems like we are even more um, divided and there seems to be more um, issues that are trying to, or people that are trying to kind of push kind of racial resentment um, that I think could lead to more events like this. Um, I don't necessarily want to say there's a direct link between the, that, but it's in the air. And my, my fear is that we're going to see other events like this in the future. You've been writing and talking about this. Dennis Saunders joining us. Uh, he's my colleague at Ordinary-Times.com, has several wonderful podcasts. He does a lot of good stuff. Make sure you're following him and seeking all of those out. Um, it's not directly analogous because this is obviously the, the very worst of the extreme. But you've been talking about how politics has ceased to try to even pretend like they're going to be a big tent. That's, mm -hmm. an, that's another one of those terms like bipartisanship that's just gotten abused to the point that it doesn't mean anything. But just real quick to kind of give us some kind of a positive out of this, you know, pretty heavy conversation. What do you mean by a big tent and why is that so important? Because if you're not doing big tents, that's when you start fragmenting. That's when you start uh, balkanizing the electorate, one person said, which, you know, used to sound like an extreme, but now it's kind of starting to look like it might fit. Uh, just talk about that big tent for just a second and how important it is to get some kind of diversity and inclusion of some type, no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on. Yeah, I, the concept of a big tent is this belief that there are organizations, whether it's political parties or other groups, where there are people who come from different backgrounds. They, they may all be under one tent. This could be a political party, but they may have slightly different opinions on different things. They may think that you know, one person may think that it's okay to raise taxes, another person may not. Um, there, there are different people based on even different parts of the country where they come from and how they have to um, deal with things. And so there's a lot of sense of diversity. It's not necessarily always diversity uh, in race or, or gender, though it should be, um, but it's also in, in opinions and in how we think and all of that. And so I think years ago, I think both of our political parties were places that were big tents. You know, you had conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats. You had conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans. And you had all of these groups together. And there in some ways was always kind of a, of a implicit understanding that you know, this candidate who is a Republican from Pennsylvania is going to act and, and maybe vote on some things different than a Republican from Arizona. Um, you know, a Democrat from North Carolina may not vote the same way as a Democrat um, in Illinois. And so there was this sense that people were different and that we had to find ways to um, come together. And especially, I think, to kind of meet in some middle where, where people could kind of make um, pragmatic choices and, and can be kind of part of this greater whole, um, even if they don't necessarily fit the prevailing 
um, maybe the majority thought in the culture. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to get back to that. But at some point, you know, there's a little bit of pendulum theory to life. I, I think it's going to come back at some point where you're, they're just going to have to because the, the margins are just going to get too squeezed, I think. Uh, Dennis Saunders, our very good friend. Uh, we always have to talk the heavy stuff with him, but that's why we need his wisdom and guidance. I always appreciate you, my friend. Let folks know what you got going on because you got a couple different podcasts that you're working on now. You do great writing. Uh, we want to make sure folks can find your stuff and your social media. Just run those things down real quick because you got a couple of really good things you do some stuff on church stuff for folks that want to do that you mm -hmm. also do some other stuff like your series that you did on k martin sears which was just fantastic stuff uh let folks know everything you've got going on my friend okay well um first is um en route which is the podcast that i do um that focuses on religion and um modern life public policy and you can uh, find that at enroutpodcast, all one word, uh, dot org. Um, the other thing is you can find articles that I've written on Medium. Um, and that can be found at uh, Dennis Sanders, all one word, dot uh, medium.com. And then finally, uh, I've been doing something called um, Church in Maine, which is a Substack letter. Um, and hopefully I will be doing a little bit more writing specifically on kind of where religion and public policy are working. Um, one of the articles I'm hoping to get out this week is one about um, kind of the changing views of Southern Baptists when it came to um, the issue of abortion um, and especially kind of where they are right now um, and how far that is from where they were 50 years ago um, when it comes to abortion. So, and then one final thing is you talked about another church podcast is that I am doing one that is called Preparing for Sunday. And um, I'm someone that uh, it's basically a podcast where we look at a verse that's coming up um, Sunday and just basically ask some questions. And so that's kind of all the things that I'm doing right now. Oh, that's it. That's all you're getting done. Yeah. yeah. Slacker. No, you're a hardworking <laughs> dude. We appreciate you. Uh, always appreciate the time. Always appreciate your opinions, my friend. Dennis Saunders, Denman, you'll see his, in, his uh, handle there on the graphic if you're watching on YouTube, and we will link to all those podcasts in the show notes. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Always appreciate you. You're welcome. We'll see you soon. Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome to Herdsdale. He's back, our buddy Joe Zemanski. He is from elections-daily.com. He got very little sleep because he is busy up doing things like live feeds and stuff. Uh, we had ourselves some primaries on Tuesdays. Let's get right to it, my friend. The one that is still ongoing, Pennsylvania, U.S. Senate, Dr. Oz. Where are we at? What are we looking for? And what's left out there as we sit here and record this on Wednesday afternoon? It, from what I've heard, it sounds like there's around about 28,000 votes left uh, out there right now. It's mostly absentee ballots. And the problem is a lot of them are out in Allegheny County, where they're not going to be planning on count, starting to count those things until Friday afternoon, which means we might not know about these results until Monday or Tuesday of next week. So uh, that's already immediately going to be a massive potential cause of uh, concern here because you know, we, it might be a whole week until we hear about what's going on. And because of how tight the margin is right now, it's only about 2,100 votes. 
And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see right now how much these kind of mail-in and absentee votes that were pushing harder for uh, McCormick, and they looked better for McCormick, see how much they kind of thin down that result. Right now, it looks like we're potentially heading towards recount territory. Multiple people from both uh, who both work for both Oz and McCormick have been contacted to potentially help out with a recount across the state and recanvassing. So we, we are very much in that territory right now. Let me just tell you, this Senate primary is not done by any means. Yeah, uh, Pennsylvania, we need to note uh, anything less than half a percentage point automatic recall. So even if people don't call for it, that's baked in the cake. Kind of looks like that's where we're heading either which way. There's going to be a recall of some kind or recount of some kind here. Um, give me a feel, though, the counties that are out. I know that's a lot of ballots for something that's kind of bouncing around that 2,000 vote margin, give or take, depending on which numbers you want to use. Give me a feel for it. You think it's Oz? You think it's McKinney? What do you think? These these ballots probably slightly favor Dave McCormick a little bit more. The question is whether or not it's enough to get him to close and then o- close down the margin to Dr. Oz and then overtake uh, Oz in the in the race right now. That's really the question. We expect, just from the patterns that we've seen across the state, uh, we expect these ballots to favor McCormick, but you know, it, it's something that could go either way. Uh, again, this is it's just a race between them right now. Kathy Barnett is not a, a not a non-factor right now. She's about eight. She's about seven points behind both uh, both other both of the other candidates in the top right now, and Oz and McCormick. So it's really just going to come down between what do those ballots show up like for Oz and McCormick? What day? What are they from? Are they election day votes? Are they absentee votes? And you know, who are they pushing towards to get towards that victory? The other thing in Pennsylvania on the Republican side, of course, uh, Doug Mastriano easily cruised uh, to the governor nomination. I, I wish I had some gifts of your reaction uh, on the live feed when this came through. Talk about it. Uh, you you guys at Election Stash Daily said this automatically makes the governorship a lean Democratic. Uh, just give me your feel on it because he won very easily. He lapped the field. He got up into the 40s in a multiple uh, person field. How bad is this for the Republican Party? Because I've said it publicly, I'll say it again here, this guy is unfit for office. He shouldn't have any elected office whatsoever, especially governorship of one of our larger states. Yeah, the problem for Mastriano is, you know, we've, you know, you have outsiders who, and businessmen who you've seen before who have come out and they kind of say crazy things like he does. But the thing is, is that Mastriano, as an elected official, as a state senator, he has a record. And he, that record is not great to say the least, in terms of probably winning over moderates and winning over key voters that you still do need to win, even a Republican favored year uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. And, you know, there are there are tweets out there of him supporting martial law. There There is a screenshot of a tweet that he retweeted that said that Doug Mastriano should be the president. Trump should appoint, uh, appoint Doug Mastriano to lead martial law in the country to figure out what the hell went out wrong with uh, Election Day 2020. And, you know, and then Mastriano retweeted that tweet from his personal account, not from his state senate. There is just my concern is that even if he does try the moderate, they just I don't think he can. There is just too much stuff out there of him like going all in on some of a lot of the nonsense surrounding 2020 and then going above and beyond that, uh, that that's what I think makes a concern for a lot of us. And that's what makes a concern for you know a a lot of republicans in the state that's why they were trying to coalesce at the end there obviously didn't work it didn't help him that trump decided to endorse mastriano 
as kind of a, a record hedge because he was so concerned about Oz losing in the end that he decided to, a lot of reports saying that he endorsed Mastriano because he wanted a victory in the state and that just propelled Mastriano over. It is, it is just a really concerning thing though. Uh, in terms of winning back the governor's race for Republicans, there's a lot of people there who are really concerned about uh, him being able to get over the hump. And Pennsylvania has done this before where it has elected Republican congressman, it has elected Republican senator, it has elected Republican state house and state senate, but then it elects Democratic governor because either a Republican governor candidate was too crazy or was too unliked to get past a relatively likable Democratic candidate. It happened in 2014. I'm very fearful that it could happen again here in 2022 for Republicans. Yeah, and one thing he hasn't retracted that might be the craziest thing he says yet as far as the average voter getting upset about it. He wants to deregister every single registered voter and re-register them. That, that kind of stuff just, you, I can't even imagine you thinking that, let alone saying like telling voters, I'm going to really hassle your life, every single one of you. Doesn't sound good. Um, before we move off Pennsylvania real quick, of course, uh, John Fetterman, who's still in the hospital, I think he was going to get out today, perhaps. Mm. Um, he won his very convincingly. Connor Lamb was thought of as kind of a rising star a few years ago. He got absolutely woodshedded in this race. Fetterman, uh, is he the favorite in this race? Would Dr. Oz be the favorite? Uh, how do you stack that up? You know, uh, it's probably, well, probably a fit, it's, it's a toss-up race right now. We've had it rated as toss-up since we knew that Senator Toomey was retiring. You know, either either Oz or McCormick as the Republican nominee, this is going to be a toss-up against Fetterman just because of the closeness of the state. Uh, but, you know, uh, Fetterman does have some angles he may have to work with if you look kind of deeper into the numbers. Uh, he finished a distant third in some very heavily uh, Black areas in Philadelphia last night. That will bring some concern to... Uh, Democratic strategists, uh, whether or not he can, their their ticket can bring out the African American vote, especially in Philadelphia for for the uh, for the fall. That is going to be a key interest of concern here. Fetterman is certainly not someone that should be underestimated, though. I've seen far too many Republicans online underestimate Fetterman. You know, he is not. I've said this before. He is not someone who should be underestimated. I do think that Republicans can end up favoring him the seat by the time fall comes around. But he's not someone that you can overlook and just say, well, he's a guy who dresses funny. He's not going to win in Pennsylvania. You know, you can't say that. That's not something you can say. That's not something you can believe. Uh, you know, this is going to be a close race again here in Pennsylvania. And having Mastriano as the governor's nominee doesn't necessarily help matters in that regard either. I hate to put it this way, but we, we got to go off recency bias a little bit. Despite who the candidates are, and I agree with you, Fetter, Fetterman's got a different kind of style, which people have a hard time getting their head around. That doesn't mean it's not going to be effective. If you get a Dr. Oz, let's say he wins this and pulls this out, you have Mastriano on the ticket. But a lot of people thought Pennsylvania was a gettable get for the Republican Party. I'm starting to get Georgia runoff vibes with these two candidates. Yeah, you know, I would almost say the difference is almost more in style and appearance than even it was in Georgia. I mean, I don't think you get difference in style and appearance than you could get from Doug Mastriano, who, you know, champion of like kind of like the real right compared to Oz, who even even though he pushed up to the Trump base, certainly is someone who looks significantly more like an act, someone who's significantly more like a Lehigh Valley or Philly suburbs based Republican. Uh, you know, I, I think even more so the Georgia runoffs, we have two very contrasting styles of candidates. I think I don't think we really know how this is going to work out for and I don't think we really know what's it going to do when it comes to, you know, how these two are going to interact, whether that's Mastriano and Oz or Mastriano and McCormick. I don't think we really know how they're going to be able to interact with each other. 
And I don't know how Mastriano is able to, he's going to have to temper himself down if he wants to have a chance. And if he wants to work with these Senate candidates, he's going to have to temper himself down from his acts in the primary. Uh, you know, we, and I don't know how he's going to do that, but we're going to see, and we're going to have to find out. Yeah. That victory speech last night did not indicate he was in the mode to do that. We will see what happens when the money people and the powers of be sitting down and talk to him, which I'm sure is going to happen next few days. Okay. The other premier race turned out to be a dud North Carolina's, uh, Senate race, Bud just ran away and hid with this thing. He, he almost made 60% of this race, kind of a surprising number. I've been dead wrong about this race from the beginning. I, is this surprising at all to you that it was by that margin and that much? No, I think, I think the issue became is that I think especially Pat McCrory, who was the basically Bud's main competitor, I think he very much just ended up being a very flawed candidate. You know, even I, someone who probably ideologically aligns a bit more towards McCrory than Bud, I was thinking, no, I would support Bud because McCrory already lost a, a winnable race in North Carolina in 2016 when he ran for re-election as governor. You know, he already lost that race. He's a guy who's lost statewide before. In but a red wave year, by the in way. A red he, was, he was the only state holder in the state. The, the legislature, the Supreme, like everything went Republican except him that year. It needs to be noted. Yeah. So I think that's, I, I don't think voters forget that. That's for sure. And uh, Bud, I think once he started campaigning, uh, Bud really capitalized on that. You could really see the shift in the polling numbers where it looked a lot tighter when Bud wasn't really campaigning as much to when he really started to get out there and go campaign. You could see the difference in the poll numbers. And uh, I think Bud just really kind of dominated that in the end. And I think it's, it's a well-deserved victory in the end for Bud that well, after he started to go out there and campaign for himself and make his case known to the voters. Yeah, I actually interviewed him a couple of weeks ago for our radio partner, Big Talker. And I asked him directly because I was one of those criticisms. So, you know, I owned it. I put the hat on. I was like, look, this is what I said. What do you think? And he said, we were we were confident in the endorsement. We know the numbers we saw off the endorsement. We were going to go to all the counties, uh, do our ground game and then do TV at the end. And that really worked for him. So all credit to him. I, he was right. I was wrong. And uh, now he goes on to face Sherry Beasley. He's probably the favorite in that race, I would assume, by what, five to ten points, something like that. Sounds that would right. be correct. We have that rated as likely Republican right now at uh, elections daily yeah and he he is a trumpist through and through but he is a very disciplined one uh he's not going to do a mastriano type thing i think he's going to be tough to beat uh cawthorn we've already talked about before he got code redded by the uh, establishment morning senator tell us how are you in your office well done sir uh <laughs> for those of you that know how those sorts of things work quick break we'll come back with joe zamanski in just a minute that was this week we're going to look ahead to next week georgia on everybody's mind talk about it right after this on her tell Uh, welcome back to her tell Joe Zamansky. He is invaluable on this stuff. Elections-daily.com. Eric Cunningham and crew over there. They do good work. If you're not watching them on elections night, you're missing out, especially last night when they discovered that Pennsylvania doesn't know how to count votes and they were going to have to dance for 40 minutes live on air. Uh, very entertaining. Well done, sir. Appreciate your time. I've done live radio. I know how that is. You did pretty well with it. Um, let's talk Georgia. This is supposed to have been another one of those real key marquee matchup things. This is starting to look like it's going to be an early call and kind of a dud of a night, isn't it? Yeah. So in the last about three weeks to a month, uh, incumbent governor Brian Kemp has started to actually pull away. This is one of the very rare cases where we've seen after a Trump endorsed endorsement, uh, the Trump endorsed candidate actually started to lose ground uh, in the polls. We've seen Kemp continually 
poll above around 53 to 56% of the vote, which would put him above the necessary runoff range uh, in Georgia for a primary, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, if Kemp wins that race, that, that, prime, that governor's race almost certainly goes to Lean's Republican uh, at this point. Uh, general election polling shows him doing about two to three points better than uh, David Perdue against uh, likely Democratic candidate uh, Stacey Abrams. So we are, we, it seems increasingly likely that we'll see Kemp versus Abrams round two. But uh, I think there's also a key race, of course, for uh, Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger is running for re-election. It's expected that he will make a runoff against Jody Heiss, but the likelihood that he'll be favored in that runoff is unlikely. But it does seem like, from what I've heard right now, is that Raffensperger is probably to make the runoff in that race at this moment right now, which will be interesting to see on election night. That is a race certainly worth watching. And that's gone miraculous when you consider where that was, where everybody thought Raffensperger should just pack it up and go to the House. Uh, give the man credit. He fought his corner and he's actually making an election out of that when a lot of people thought he was DOA, you know, right after the Georgia runoffs when he stood up to Trump. So interesting things going on in Georgia. Okay. Herschel Walker looks like he's going to cruise the victory. Kemp looks like he's going to win 20 plus points. In fact, I just saw where David Perdue's actually parring his schedule back. That's never a good sign, right? Before no, never a good sign. Um, uh, sitting Senator Raphael Warnock will be uh, Herschel Walker's opponent. We've already covered it, but just to recap for a second, I think this might be one of the real, real ugly elections of this cycle, especially in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, this is a race that's going to get nasty. Uh, both Warnock and Walker have questions to their background, especially relating to potential uh, issues with potentially domestic abuse. There's been some claims made against Warnock from what seems to be a messy divorce that occurred between him and his ex-wife. Walker has been accused a couple of times now of domestic violence. Uh, this is a race that is going to get nasty. This is a race that I've heard to expect to get nasty between these two candidates. There's a lot of money behind them as well to spend on advertisements for those two. It is going to be a nasty, nasty race. Uh, Georgia, Georgia voters, I feel bad for you. I'm sure all of you down there are feeling burnt out after the last two years, especially because of the runoffs that took you another three months to get through uh, back in back in late 2020, early 2021. Uh, you know, this is going to be another messy, dirty, expensive race in Georgia. One that's certainly going to be very interesting to watch, but it is going to be messy. Like you said, it's probably going to be very dirty. And uh, it might be hard to watch it sometimes just because of how it's going to be partaken of by those two, by those two candidates. Uh, so Georgia's up next. We've, we're kind of getting through the heat, the, the meat of the primary season here. Uh, a lot of interesting elections yet to go, my friend. Uh, Joe Zemanski, let folks know where they can follow you. Your election night coverage just gets better and better every time you guys do it. Uh well, for our live stream, you can either follow us on Twitter at elections underscore daily, and you can watch our live streams there. We stream them every time from, from, uh, from that point, from our Twitter there, or you can follow it. You can follow us and subscribe on YouTube elections daily right there on YouTube. You can subscribe there and you can watch our live streams there either over to work. You can find me at Joseph Szymanski on Twitter, all one word. That is S-Z-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I there for my last name. Uh, and then for just for our general ratings, again, elections-daily.com. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter that will show you, uh, that will recap at the end of the week uh, all of our articles from the past week. We will have a ratings update for you shortly. I just completed my finals. I'm probably working on it tonight. We will have a House, Senate, and Governor's rating uh, governor's rating update all for you guys within the next couple of days. So be on the lookout for those. Yeah, y'all do great work. 
All right, man, go grab yourself a nap. I know you're a little low on sleep today. Appreciate it. We will have you back again, probably a bunch over this summer. Hot summer of election stuff. Well done, my friend. Joe Zemanski, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me on. Yes, sir. I heard tell show guerrilla style because I'm on an appointment, but I really wanted to talk to our friend over in the UK. And because of the time difference, this is how it works out. We roll with it. We adapt and overcome. Another one of our great young voices contributors, uh, Bill Balkett, uh, from over in the UK. He's got a long list of publishing credits. He's also a media commentator over yonder. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for the time today, my friend. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, we've been doing some voting over here. About a week ago, we covered the Irish elections up north, y'all. You had some local elections uh, over there. And although these aren't covered the way like a prime minister election would or something like this, this is a really big deal. And it is a precursor for some of the stuff that's been going on over in the UK lately, isn't it? Yeah, it was a big test for both political parties, actually. It was a test for the Conservative Party to see you know, what effect that uh, Boris Johnson's administration has had on public opinion over the last years since the uh, local elections we had in 2021, uh, which the Conservatives kind of got bounced from because of Keir Starmer's leadership and actually uh, the positive reception that the majority of the British public felt that the Tories had done uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. But this was very different because at the moment, Britain's embroiled in a cost of living crisis. Uh, the Tories have always been a involved in numerous scandals. Uh, there's the Partygate scandal, having illicit parties, you know, during lockdown when they weren't supposed having to, there's sleaze around second jobs. There's also another scandal called Pest Minister, which has uh, been uh, coming back from the ashes around bullying and sexual assault. So that in itself was a test to see whether you know, Boris Johnson's premiership has had a negative opinion public uh, perception and the voting paper, but also as a test for Keir Starmer to see whether he's solidified the centre ground in in British politics, whether he's uh, improved since you know the years of Jeremy Corbyn and the disaster that was the 2019 general election. Um, and on the whole, it was a mixed picture, but it was definitely uh, a worse you know set of results for the Conservative Party. You know who lost over 500 councillors. It was their worst result. Uh, actually, since Tony Blair was the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and while Labour Party also did well um, in, you know, improving in areas like London and the South, uh, they weren't able to make the gains that they were hoping for in their former traditional uh, seats in the Midlands and in the north of England, or the Red Wall, as we call it. Uh, and, and of course, there's a lot of scope for interpretation within Wales, Scotland, and also Northern Ireland, but I'm sure uh, we'll get uh, into those lists later on. Yeah, we will. Let's start with Keir Starmer, because we're going to talk about Boris Johnson a lot here. This is kind of now he's getting elections under his uh, leadership of the Labour Party, just not being Jeremy Corbyn. He got a bounce from that. But now this is his party and his leadership. What is the initial reaction now that we've actually done some voting under Keir Starmer, Starmer is and it's only fair to point out the league going into this. You mentioned it, the party gate stuff with Boris Johnson. Kerr got himself in a little bit of trouble himself. How do we parse all that out? And where does Kerr Starmer and his leadership stand today as opposed to about a week ago? 
that's the thing with the uh, results, because actually there was a lot of positivity to take with uh, Britain's biggest opposition party, uh, where, as I say, maybe they weren't able to regain, you know, as, as many councils or, 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 or take as many councillors from other political parties um, in, in the Midlands North, but they were able to make some kind of modest ground. And, and like I said, in British politics, we've got a, quite a strong uh, realignment happening where we're seeing the Tories doing uh, better in outer suburbs in, 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 in you know, the countryside, whereas Labour do better in university towns, uh, London areas where there are mayors as well. Um, but that was short-lived because Keir Starmer was embroiled uh, in his own uh, scandal around breaking lockdown rules, as, as we call it in the press, beer gates, uh, where he, uh, during actually during the last elections, there, there was uh, alongside uh, the, uh, you know, the contest for local mayors and also the councils, um, as well as Scottish and Welsh parliaments, there was there was also a by-election for a parliamentary seat in Hartlepool. Uh, you know, key red wall seat. It's one that Labour held since 1970, since its formation, and then was taken by the Tories. And they were in Mary Foy's office. She's a Labour MP. They were in her constituency office in uh, in Durham, uh, a city in the north of England, uh, and uh, over 15. Labour staffers, including Sakia Starman's also deputy leader, uh, Angela Rayner, uh, had a curry uh, and a beer when they weren't supposed to, when they weren't supposed to, because at the time um, social mixing was uh, banned indoors. Uh, it was only for a maximum of six people or two two households. And uh, on the day in which the local election results came out early in the Friday morning, um, Durham Constabulary, the, the the police force over there. Uh, announced their own criminal investigation uh, into Sakir Summers actors as to whether they broke down lo lockdown rules. And as we know from Boris Johnson's own uh, party probe, he was fined. He was given a fixed penalty notice for doing so, as have a, as have a hundred other uh, members of the government, whether they're civil servants or ministers, we don't know. Um, but now there's a very good chance that Sakir Starmer will be fine himself. And he's made a promise that um, that if he were to receive a fine, just like Boris Johnson did, uh, then he will resign at Labour, as Labour leader, which will actually force greater pressure on the Prime Minister to uh, resign if he's to follow suit and have some uh, integrity left within him. Yeah, Bill Bowkett joining us from the UK, another great Young Voices contributor and a great commentator in his own right over there. Make sure you're following him. One of the things the speculation was that Boris Johnson has somewhat wrote out the trouble he has is because there's not a clear cut successor to him in the Conservatives, in the Tories. Uh, is the same true with Keir Starmer? If he holds to this and he steps down, is there a clear cut successor? Or could we be in a situation come the next general election where both parties are kind of scrambling for leadership at the same time? That's certainly the case. I think, uh, at least in the Tory party, there are several possible contenders to uh, step into number 10 Downing Street. You've got the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who's been you know, centre stage in negotiating um, a way out of the uh, 
uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, she's also been integral to making all these post-Brexit trade deals with countries like Australia uh, and New Zealand uh, and, and other countries. Whereas with the, the Labour Party, um, there's a bit more open scope for who to take over. I mean, but the problem there is, is that uh, even, you know, with American listeners, it's the same with British uh, listeners or, or British people is that there's, there's not really any standout figures. Um, I actually looked recently in the most, Ugo, uh, most recent YouGov polling into the most popular Labour figures. That's not just uh, MPs. It could also be... Um, uh, mayors like the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, or former prime ministers like uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair. And I think it was only Yvette Cooper, who's the shadow uh, home secretary, that came out as, as the highest current you know, sitting member of Labour's front bench, and she was seventh. Um, I mean, on top of my head, there's people like Wes Streeting, the shadow health secretary, who's you know, a very eloquent speaker, you know, very moderate. Lisa Nandy uh, is the shadow foreign secretary and she's very tough when it comes to the Ouija Muslims in, in China uh, and also criticizing the government's uh, leveling up strategy um, to, to make Britain more equal, more fairer, more uh, financially prosperous. Um, but the problem there is, is that ask any normal member of the public, you know, to name, I don't know, 10 members of the Labour shadow cabinet, uh, you'd really struggle to probably list half, you know, list four or five. So um, there's definitely people who could take over as summer, but they would also have, you know, an extremely difficult job um, in not only, you know, resonating with the British public, um, but also, you know, creating a, uh, a vision which they see as, as, as uh, moving on from 12 years of Tory rule, um, especially since the Tory party are now moving further left uh, on economics since they've introduced all these tax rises around national insurance and VAT. It, it's kind of got to raise the question is what the Labour Party actually offering uh, nowadays? That would certainly be the question that Sakir Starmer or indeed any future Labour leader will have to answer. It, how much of this is because British politics is like anywhere else. Like you've mentioned, the Tories have been in charge for quite a while. There's got to be just a fatigue factor with some of it just because they've been in power for so long. But like you said, you also have this dynamic of the post-Corbin Labor Party kind of trying to figure out who they are. And then in these results, there's definitely something to be said. There's a bit of a rural and urban divide, as we would call it in the States, with some of these results. How much of this is, yeah, there's a fatigue, but the Labor Party is still going to have to come with some kind of a cohesive vision here if they're going to take the leadership? Yeah, uh, that's that's totally true. Um, for for the last at least four years, uh, at least before the pandemic, the the overarching issue was uh, was Brexit uh, the, and Britain leaving the European Union. Had that referendum where the majority of the public uh, said that we'd be better off being outside the the trading bloc, that intergovernmental organisation, and the Labour Party uh, under Jeremy Corbyn's reign you know, weren't standing for it during the 2019 general election. They actually had in their manifesto that they would have a, a second referendum uh, on the Brexit deal. So Labour would essentially go to go to the European Union in Belgium, uh, you know, negotiate a deal and then have a referendum where they would campaign against it. 
Um, and that hurt a lot of voters, especially in the traditional heartlands in the north uh, and in the Midlands, who you know strongly voted uh, to leave the European Union compared to uh, London and the south of England. Um, uh, so that there's that regional issue, but that Brexit is becoming less prevalent. That it might be interconnected to things like you know the cost of living, the price of food, uh, which has been skyrocketing. You know, inflated. The Bank of England projects that inflation is going to be at ten percent uh, at the end of this year, um, and because of the way in which the Tories have uh, mishandled the economy by you know throughout the pandemic and and now post pandemic. Labour actually leading the Tories when it comes to trust, uh, at least public polling when it comes to you know, trust in handling and managing public finances. So on the economic side, you know, they do have a strength in there. And I could see come the next general election um, that they could just simply ask the question to voters, you know, in any, you know, uh, election video or during a debate has your living standards improved under the Tories and the vast majority of people would say no uh, and that in itself is a winning formula it's just could they incorporate that with a strong you know message for wider society for you know promoting social liberalism but also um, you know proving that they are more trustworthy parties than Tories who like I mentioned have been embroiled in issues around trust that you know sleaze and sexual assault um and second jobs um it's going to be you know tough ask and also the tories have an 80 seat majority uh, in the house of commons and only once in history has a majority uh been slashed you know that big um so it's going to be a mighty challenge for the for the labor party yeah talking to our friend bill balkett over in the UK, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into some of the policies. Every time they have an election, they do a Queen's speech that lays out the agenda. A couple interesting things in that agenda. We're going to talk about Northern Ireland, as he mentioned. Also, some comments from some ministers got some attention on this side of the pond. So we'll bring that up. Uh, Bill Balkiv, more with our friend in the UK, right after this on her Tech. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to our friend Bill Balkett over in the UK, talking about their recent local elections and the wider ranging implications there. Uh, let's start where we left off, though. In America, we have the uh, the the phrase when it comes to the elections. It's the economy, stupid. I don't know what the British version of that is, but with the cost of living at the forefront, with inflation as high as it is now, double digits in England projected to maybe even go a little higher before it tops off. I got to imagine it's the economy stupid is pretty much what's on a lot of people's minds over there right now. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I think at the moment it's polling shows. I think it's the second biggest issue, at least by public opinion standards. But then, like I say, there's, there's other issues that are kind of tied into, uh, into the economy. Uh, the biggest being uh, the declining in living standards. Um, so yeah, in the past, we've had other factors that kind of decide uh, people's voting behaviour. And during the Brexit referendum, people were more motivated by cultural factors like um, immigration, like the rule of law, than they were to um, to economic factors around, you know, uh, marginal decline or um, trading standards. If Britain were to leave, and the fact that we might become, you know, more isolated 
nation. And the same was with the 2019 election. The 2019 general election was uh, primarily seen by many people as the Brexit uh, election, as to which party do they feel is going to deliver on the will of, of the, the British electorates. Uh, but now with debt as high as it is caused by the pandemic, um, there's also been some issues uh, around Brexit, uh, around trade um, and supply issues. Um, and also, the, we can't forget the, the war in Ukraine, which is having uh, a massive impact on, on, on trade and also on the price of fuel. And, and, and also the rise in inflation uh, is meaning that the price of goods are going up. So food prices uh, and prices, you know, in supermarkets uh, uh, are, are hiking up as well. So is that infamous um, Bill Clinton quote goes, then yes, I think the economy is by far and away uh, the most prevalent issue um, that is motivating people, at least uh, on the doorstep. Now they're talking about the Tories, Bill Balkett joining us here on Hertel. They're talking a lot of policies here, but we're just kind of looking at it from the outside. You're there, you tell me, because of the COVID policies, because of the adjustments from Brexit, because of their tax policies that you already touched on, because of the NHS policies that they've been working on, fairly or unfairly, however you want to parse it out, they're kind of painted into the corner that they're going to have to fight out of. And I don't think they've got a lot that they can really do here, do they? They, they have some legroom, I feel. Um, at least when it comes to the economy, they can, Boris Johnson, should he, should he be, you know, the Conservative Party leader, come the next election, which is most likely to be either 2023 or, or even 2024, then they would say, uh, but we didn't have um, a war uh, and we didn't have a pandemic, you know, in our election manifesto um, in that case. Uh, and as we saw with the Queen's speech, um, there, there's a lot of red meat policies which are, you know, going to be put through uh, the Houses of Parliament over, over the next parliamentary year. We've got uh, a big bill uh, when it comes to um, regulating big tech. We have uh, a very big bill, the National anti Borders Bill, which is supposed to uh, hung on illegal immigration. Um, there's a uh, deal agreed with uh, the Rwandan government to send uh, it, asylum seekers uh, trying to enter the UK and send them to uh, the Central African country. Um, and many of these red meat policies are, are being proposed not only because they were in the Conservative 2019 manifesto and they have to deliver on them, otherwise um, they, they're going to lose, you know, a couple, you know, many votes. Um, but it's also being seen and interpreted, at least by um, some politicians, uh, as, as an appeasement from Boris Johnson over uh, distrust within his own Tory ranks over the way he's handled the economy, the, his um, behaviour during the Partygate scandal, um, and and whether he misled Parliament to, in in the process as well. Um, so when it comes to that uh, next election, when it, when it does come around, this this is the pivotal question: is that the Tories have been in power for twelve years now, and and they've got to ask voters and really appeal to them because there are going to be some who are going to be apathetic uh, and many people aren't turning up to doorstep as much as they were. Actually, the turnout in the local elections was just over 30%, which is an incredibly low number. It's, it's half of what a 
you normally see at a general election. So, so they really have to, the brand of Boris Johnson, uh, along with, you know, the appeal of conservatism, uh, modern British conservatism um, has to stick, otherwise they're at risk of, uh, of succeeding, uh, succeeding to, to the Labour Party, which uh, to them would be, um, which would be an a economic and a social disaster. Because of what transpired before uh, with Brexit, with the changing in power, with Boris Johnson's own rise to power, has it been a blessing or a curse that they've kind of everybody kind of admits like this general election is going to be out in the future? It's going to be at least another year in the future, probably. Is that a blessing or a curse to the Tory party that's trying to readjust on the fly here? Well, there was one report I saw from uh, Business Insider, actually, um, Catherine Neal, uh, Kat who uh, heard from several Tory sources that potentially the Tories are eyeing up election uh, this year. And the reason they're doing it this year is because they feel that the economy at this moment of time is not getting any better with um, the uh, MPS, as I mentioned, predicting that hike in inflation, uh, hike in interest rates uh, resultingly as well, that if the if the state of the economy doesn't improve as, as they would hope, um, you know, come 12 months time, then then what's the point of holding off for a general election? I mean, that there could be the benefit for, for Johnson in um, putting behind some of the more personal uh, Westminster bubble stories, as we like to call them, around sleaze and Partygate. Um, because as you're seeing with public uh, opinion, uh, I think in the most recent Salvation poll, uh, it showed still that a majority uh, of the British people want Boris Johnson to resign and that majority see him as a dishonest uh, politicians so that in itself could be an advantage but then that would give also Labour the chance to make more ground we've got some really important by-elections uh, for parliamentary seats coming up we've got the Wakefield by-election which was caused after Imran Khan a Tory MP uh, was suspended uh, for, uh, uh, for sexual harassment uh, and then we've got another uh, in, in, in Tiverton and Honiton uh, by uh, Neil Parrish, an MP who was caught watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber. Um, and that in itself will be a test. I mean, local, local uh, elections actually, as we mentioned, uh, have more local factors involved in it. And the thing is that parties are able to concentrate all their resources into, uh, into these different uh, marginals and seats uh, to gain the best advantage. Um, but it's a, it's a, but I think the most realistic solution as uh, date that we can see is probably going to be 2023. Wait till this Metropolitan Police investigations Partygate is concluded. Wait until uh, the late, uh, Durham Police finish their conclusion. You know, hopefully the situation in Ukraine improves. Um, wait and see if any of the measures implemented by the Tory, like the uh, energy rebate actually has uh, any impact on people's livelihoods uh, and see where to go from there. Yeah, it makes that Keir Starmer promise even more interesting if that should go down. Uh, Bill Bowker, join us real quick before we have to let you go. A lot of the threads that went through all of these issues we talked about, the economy, the leftover wake of Brexit, things like this, uh, border policy, those are new spins on a very old problem has risen since the Queen's speech. Northern Ireland is getting messy and it's getting loud. Uh, just real quickly before we have to let you go, 
what's the the results of that? How is that going to play? Because again, an old problem, a little bit of a new spin in it with Sinn Féin taking power in the Republic of Ireland. How's that going to play going forward? Yes, we can't forget uh, the other parts of the UK as well before we get into Northern Ireland and Wales. Uh, Labour increased their share of the vote in Scotland. The Scottish National Party increased their share of the vote. So that in itself is going to raise further questions about a second independence referendum uh, over there. But the, the big story I feel for at the entire general election, as you said, is what happened in Northern Ireland, uh, which is Sinn Féin uh, becoming the largest party in Northern Ireland. It's actually the first time that a nationalist party uh, is the largest party in the province since Northern Ireland was created uh, over 101 years ago and there are far-reaching consequences with this not only because uh, the actually the biggest unionist party who have remained have been in power there for you know many a decade the democratic unionist party are refusing to go into a power share agreement in northern Ireland because uh, unlike other democracies in the uk where we have a majoritarian system um where you know parties with the most votes would then um, you know be able to rule or if they lack a majority they would have to be in coalition uh, in Northern Ireland uh, the different factions the unionists and the nationalist parties actually have to work together and they have to the, to reach consensus um, but the Democratic Unionist Party don't want to do it because they see Sinn Féin is historically you know the political wing of the uh, IRA um, they see that they're going to break up the union. You hear Mary Lou McDonald, the president of Sinn Féin, wanting a, a border poll uh, you know, within the next five years. And then we've got this issue uh, around the protocol, um, which ultimately the Sinn Féin support, uh, but the DUP don't because it's causing uh, trade barriers uh, between uh, the UK, the, you know, the Great Britain, as we know, or, or mainland Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and we heard today that Liz Truss um, wants to scrap elements of the protocol um, in order to reduce bureaucracy, and that, but also in turn respect the Good Friday Agreement, which is what has preserved peace in Northern Ireland over the last three decades. Um, it's going it, to just because they won the majority doesn't come actually if you combine the different votes from the other parties. Then unionism is still the largest block, uh, at least among voters. Uh, but it's certainly going to put pressure um, on Boris Johnson. It's going to put pressure on the wider union. Uh, and it's going to raise further questions as to uh, Northern Ireland would be better off uh, as part of the United Kingdom uh, or whether it would want to um, unite Ireland uh, for the first time, or, uh, you know, in over a century. Yeah, very interesting times. We're definitely going to have you back again to continue to cover this because uh, it's not going to get less interesting in UK politics. Our friend Bill Balkett over in the UK, my friend, until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you. You have a lot of writing credits. Uh, you have a couple of things that you have going. Also, your social media. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Sure. Uh, so if you want to read uh, any of the content that I and the team at Reaction do a commentary news website based in the UK, then uh, please do subscribe. It's www.reaction.life. Uh, and if you want to follow me on social media, um, then it's uh, at Bill underscore Balkis. And if you're an avid television uh, or radio listener in the UK, then you'll probably see me uh, on either GB News or, or Talk TV. So 
I, I'll, I'll be around, but uh, but uh, if you, uh, definitely if you're interested in British politics, uh, then it's definitely worth paying, um, you know, 80 British pounds for a reaction subscription. Yeah, uh, I watched some of your clips. You do good work, my friend, and uh, hope to have you back soon to talk a little more UK politics. Appreciate your time today. Bill Balkett. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tells Twice on Sunday. We hope you join us again on Monday, or if you're listening to this some other time, continue to look through all the episodes of Herd Tell, all the good talks that we have, all the Twice on Sunday programs. We sure do appreciate it. Do us a favor, though. Make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're watching or listening to this on. It's really important to us. Let's other folks know our little program is worth listening to. It also gives us good feedback. We always answer those comments. If you want to talk to us directly, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Herdtellshow on the Twitter. Always thrilled to hear from you. Might even put it in the show. We've had commenters come on the show and fight their corner before, so you never know. Keep your bearing. Be nice. But we love to hear from you. So until we talk to you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again on Herdtell. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So